Oxygen, pretty important for human life. There's no price on it. Why? It's not scarce. Something like diamonds, not that important to human existence, yet has a huge price because the demand way outstrips the supply. The unique thing about scarcity and money is that money is always scarce. All right, I want to walk through one thread that I, all of this is me taking liberally from you. So mm-hmm. tell me where Please. I go astray here. Um, but this was a chain of events that I was like, oh, my God, I now actually understand what's going on. And this is terrifying. So you've got um, World War Two happens mm-hmm. and you've got people invading countries and raiding their gold stores because Mm -hmm. why would you invade if you're not going to get something if you can't steal something these are your words so you invade a country you steal their gold so people are like fuck i don't want to get invaded so they started or if i do i don't want them to be able to steal my gold so they started sending gold to the u.s u.s ends up storing all this gold for people has a massive amount of gold Mm -hmm. and gold historically basically money as we think of it the the tangible dollars and bills Mm -hmm. You would store gold in a protected warehouse somewhere and they would give you a paper that represented the amount of gold. So people being savvy started trading that because it's as good as gold because you could go and cash it in. So now the U.S. post-World War II has all this gold coming in. And we then after World War II have the Bretton Woods Mm -hmm. uh, convention. I'm not sure what it was exactly. But they say, hey, we've got all this gold now. We're going to make the dollar, the um, central reserve currency, Mm -hmm. global reserve currency, excuse me. And but it's all backed by all this gold that we have. So, hey, we're good. But in 1971, for reasons that you will have to explain, uh, Nixon decided to take us off of the gold standard. So previously to that, if you had a dollar, you could actually go redeem it for gold. Yes. Now. You couldn't. And it was fiat. It was by decree. I say that this dollar has value and therefore it has value. Uh, The problem is that's married to something that happened at some point in the early 1900s that you will have to explain. The beast from Jekyll Island, where we Uh, decided uh, to create a central bank, which isn't owned by the government, right? Correct. Which I still can't believe is true. The yeah. Federal Reserve yeah. is not the federal it's not government. federal and it has no reserves. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like this is where I'm like, what? language matters. Well yeah. played. Yeah. That's yeah. a very good way to get me think that this is a government. All right. So we now break with the gold standard. And yeah. so it's we can literally print money. So as me, the ignorant guy that spent his whole life trying to make money, knows nothing about investing. I make the money. I think I am safe actually putting it under mm-hmm. my bed. Only to realize that there's actually somebody that has the ability to go print or go burr, right? And they, yes. they can press a button and it just makes more money. And therefore, with more money floating around, you've got more people competing to buy that loaf of bread or whatever. Yeah. So the cost goes up, as one yeah. would naturally expect. And so now, even though I theoretically have my assets are going up and yay, I have more money, but I... I either have the same buying power, so it's just an illusion, or I actually have less buying power and it's actually devastating. And so now we get into this crazy making loop of it seems like I should be getting ahead, but I'm not getting ahead. I think of inflation as being a natural act, but really in the background are people making these decisions and and we will grant them that they are being kind. They're trying to do something nice. They're trying to level out volatility, if I had to guess, is actually their motivation. Uh, but they level out that volatility by um, creating debt cycles and devaluing the currency, which you are saying mechanistically, it just isn't different than theft. Um, but when people think of redistribution of wealth as a good thing, 
Mm-hmm. Is that just another crazy making thing? Or are people right to think that, no, this is good. We should be redistributing the wealth. Well, that's a good long question. Um, <laughs> I would start Certainly with a long question. Yeah. So let's do this. Wealth redistribution, first of all, no one ever thinks it's a good thing when they're the target. No one ever, no one ever wants to be redistributed from. No one ever voluntarily gets redistributed from. That would be giving up value or wealth or capital for nothing in exchange. I don't think anyone, I don't say no one ever, but typically no one ever will enter that um, agreement, let's say. So maybe we'll track this arc. We'll do what is gold? How did we get gold? Why and how central banking was introduced? And then we'll get into um, really what's happened post 1971. So, and I love this question, by the way, what is money? Right. This is the name of the show. And this is the I think the key to incepting these ideas into people or at least getting people to question their socioeconomic reality such that they can peel back the layers of this onion and see through some of these euphemisms we've been getting to or we've been given. And one definition of money, this is the Austrian economic definition, is that it's a universal medium of exchange. So, again, Capitalism is built on free exchange. It's built on voluntary action, right? Self-ownership, you go out into the world, create things of value, you trade them with other self-owned people. The result is we create more output per unit of input. We become more efficient acting in concert than we do acting in isolation. This is the division of labor. This is the reason wealth and riches exist because we specialize and we trade with one another. In that process, something necessarily becomes most exchangeable or most tradable, right? By definition, for all trading with one another, there's going to be a single asset of that uh, flurry of trading activity that is the most liquid asset, the most tradable or exchangeable asset. That is money. That's how money emerges in the marketplace. It is not a government creation has nothing to do with government other than the fact that they monopolize it and try to control it to control people. Um, and when you look at money from that first principle standpoint, and this is from the Austrian school, there's a deep, long literature on this, you'll see that money needs to exhibit five key properties. And this is an important point. We typically think that we want the thing, right? We want the table, we want the car, whatever. But we don't. We want the services the thing renders to us. So you could think almost in the world of economics, there are no such thing as goods, if you will. I know there are goods. I know there's tables. I know there's cars. But what we are after is what services those goods provide to us. So when we look at money, the five properties that market actors voluntarily favor, you could also think of as the five services we seek from money are divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. So I'll walk through each one of these. Money needs to be divisible. Pretty obvious. You want to transact at different scales. You want to buy coffee in the same day that you go and buy a house, right? So you'd like to be able to give someone a coin or send someone a wire for 10 million bucks to buy a house. Pretty obvious. Um, money needs to be durable in that it's not going to corrode over time. If you put a bunch of gold in a safe 
it's not going to decompose, right? The half-life on gold is way longer than uh, matters to any of us. If you put a bunch of oranges in the safe and you were using that as money, that's going to rot pretty quickly. So clearly durability matters. Money needs to be recognizable, which means that each trading party can verify its authenticity. So at every transaction, and I'm handing you dollars, you can certify either with that little pen they mark on dollars to make sure it's uh, a legitimate you know, U.S. Federal Reserve issued dollar. Or if it was gold back in the day, they had different techniques for assaying uh, the gold's authenticity, making sure it wasn't lead plated with gold. Uh, in fact, the name Sound Money, which you've probably heard in, in your explorations of the rabbit hole, that referred to the sound a gold coin made when dropped a certain way. So you could verify its authenticity by the sound it would create. Um, and this is another reason we introduced coinage and currency, because to verify money at every transaction is a very significant transaction cost. Transaction costs are dissipative to trade, right? If we want to increase trade and increase wealth, we want to reduce transaction cost. So by abstracting into currency or putting it in a warehouse and trusting the warehouse custodian, we can now trade much more quickly and more efficiently. So that, I mean, that's that's one aspect of money that coinage and currency helped was recognizability. Money also needs to be portable. Pretty obvious. You want to be able to move it across space, right? If I'm buying something in another city, I need to get my gold or dollars to the other city to give it to the recipient. Finally, and most importantly, money has to be scarce. And now we typically think scarce is purely a supply side function. That's not what scarcity means. Scarcity occurs when demand outstrips supply. So when there is more appetite for the thing than there is a supply of the thing. Okay, so oxygen Pretty important for human life. There's no price on it. Why? Not scarce. It's not scarce. The supply way outstrips the demand, right? Um, something like diamonds, not that important to human existence, yet has a huge price because the demand way outstrips the supply. The unique thing about scarcity and money is that money is always scarce because it's a call option on everything, all the capital, all the savings humans can produce. The heart of man is never satisfied. We always want more. Therefore, money is always scarce by definition. So what market actors tend to favor is the money that has the most inelastic supply. So this means the supply that is least subject to change uh, by the willpower of others. That is what market actors will zero in on. And here, there's another a number of ways to think about this. Um, time, energy, second law of thermodynamics. We cannot create nor destroy energy, right? We're sacrificing time and energy to earn money. You would naturally want the thing you're sacrificing this absolutely scarce time and energy for to be similarly absolutely scarce. That would be the ideal money, right? Something that can't be created or destroyed. Um, with money, to gloss over a little bit of history, monetary metals, best satisfied, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability. Those are just, and we've tried a lot of experiments. We've had seashells, we've had glass beads, we've had cattle. We've, we've used all kinds of things as money, right? 
natural market processes determined that monetary metals were the most satisfactory across the first four properties or services that money can render to us. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, meaning specifically its supply was the least vulnerable to change. No matter how much effort, time, energy we poured into producing gold, its supply increased the slowest and the most predictably. So this gave us a medium into which we could store economic value and we would know with relative certainty that it would only change by about 2% year over year. So this gave gold the store value function we traditionally associate with it. Um, that's great, right? Gold is great. Gold is good money. It's been good money, 5,000 years, uh, served a lot of purposes. But the big hangup with gold is lack of portability, right? We talked about this a little bit earlier. You want to be able to move it across space, obviously. But gold's heavy. It's physical, right? It's very expensive to secure. Um, it actually, in one way, it's beneficial and that you can store a lot of economic value in a small area and sort of uh, amortize the security costs around it. But when you need to move it, that's when there's a lot of risk involved. And this was the impetus for introducing what you alluded to earlier were the warehousing businesses. So a private enterprise, a free market function came to be where a warehouse would take custody of the gold, give you the warehouse receipt. You can go and transact it. It's as good as gold, right? You have a call option on gold effectively. This was introduced to augment the portability of gold. Well, those warehouses became banks. Those banks became central banks. And this is all, again, I'm not laying out a nefarious scheme here. This is the economics, the economies of scale associated with gold. It is more efficient to centralize custody of this heavy, bulky metal and issue abstractions in it. It's more efficient to transact in that model than it is with physical gold. So that's what drives this process. The problem is you now have to trust the custodian. You've introduced what we call counterparty risk. There's a counterparty to that trade. I can trade this paper with everyone and it's as good as gold. Until I go to redeem the gold from the warehouse and there's the gold's not there or they won't redeem it or a fraction of what this paper represents is available. Um, so that is kind of the history of gold into central banking. And I guess the history of central banking is quite interesting. Um, I would say that, you know, Maybe this is an important point, too, that people were all seeking something for nothing. I think this is kind of unavoidable. This is the entrepreneurial path, right? You've got a problem. You've got an itch. You want to scratch that itch or solve that problem with less effort, right? The, the, the really successful entrepreneur is almost brilliantly lazy, Right? He's identifying a problem and finding the quicker way, a better way to solve it. When he makes that discovery, he can now sell that product or that service or that method, whatever it is, into the marketplace. And because everyone wants something for nothing, they will reward him. Right? This is the entrepreneurial process. So that's great. We all want something for nothing, and it's a, a valid, noble pursuit. The problem, I think, is when we cross that line of self-ownership or of morality 
and we start seeking something for nothing from others, right? Someone else has planted the garden. Someone else has built the business. Someone else has mined the gold. And instead of me performing the work to create that value or earn that value, I figured that I can just go out and co-opt or coerce or take that property or that asset from that person. That's a path for me to get something for nothing. But it's the immoral path, right? So I see this as kind of like the driving force in most human action. We're trying to get something for nothing, but there's a line that can be crossed. And we talked earlier about self-ownership. I think that's the line. When you violate the self-ownership of someone else, that's the problem. Central banking sort of came about as this natural institution to augment the technological limitations of gold. It wasn't portable, right? But when you put that much power, you concentrate that much power into one institution, it becomes noxious. It becomes corrupting. It becomes uh, irresistible for some people of lower scruples anywhere in the world to seek that seat of power. And this is what I think has really started to deteriorate the monetary system. And if you look at the history of central banking, it's a lot of leveraging one another, right? You, you know, you talked about a lot of the gold ending up in the United States. This was also pre-World War II. A lot of it has to do with the balance of payments among countries, which are just inflows and outflows of capital. But particularly when things got hot in Europe, a lot of gold started coming into the U.S., and again, with when we with that much power or money in one place, we became the world superpower. And so we stepped on to the the theater of war at the end of World War II and we declared ourselves victorious. Rightfully or wrongfully so, you can make your own judgments about that. And then we rewrote the rules of global banking to favor the United States where the dollar is pegged to gold, all of the currencies are pegged to the dollar. So what this gave the United States is the infamous exorbitant privilege, as it's been called, to be able to print money. We could send these paper certificates out into the world and have them send us goods and services in exchange. Ad infinitum, right? Until the system breaks down. Countries had the option to call our bluff, though. They could accept these dollars, but they could redeem them for gold if they thought we're being irresponsible with, with the monetary policy for printing too much money. Well, countries started calling our bluff after 1944. Uh, we had this huge economic boom. And then again, glossing over some history, I think it was Germany that tried to repatriate some gold. So they tried to redeem dollars for gold. And then we had the infamous 1971 Nixon shock that said no more gold redemptions. And from that point on, and it was said to be a temporary measure, as governments so often and infamously say, who was it that said that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution? <laughs> Here we are exactly 50 years later in 2021, um, deep into this global fiat currency experiment led by the United States. Um, and things have really come off the hinges. I've, I've point people on this topic to this website WTF happened in 1971.com. This is not just economic, right? This is, it's socioeconomic. There's, you know, obesity rates have spiked, um, drug addiction, suicide, uh, clearly indebtedness, right? When, when you think this is tied to coming off the gold standard? 
As the Austrians wrote a long time ago, the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked. That, and this gets into back into property and time preference. Um, when money's losing its value over time, we're all incentivized to be more short-term thinking. This is a de-civilizing force. And I think it is at, I don't want to say it's the sole cause for a lot of the cultural malaise we see in the world today, but I think it's a significant contributor. Okay, that gets really complicated. So while very interesting, I think we push that down. There's a line that I've heard you say that I think is really important for people to understand because I'm I'm thinking of myself as I first started to grapple with this idea of inflation as theft and I just couldn't make the words even it seemed like such a non sequitur mm-hmm. to me. Um, and that is that there's no difference between that. I had a realization when I first got introduced to the stock market, I couldn't make it make sense until I was like, wait, this is like baseball cards, right? <laughs> These, unless it pays you a dividend, if it pays you a dividend, it's different because it's actually giving yeah. you cash. But if it doesn't, it is literally baseball cards. It only has the value that people agree that it has. And once they stop agreeing that it has that value, then it stops having that value in any real way. When I think about Inflation, the following sentence that I heard you say makes all the sense in the world, which is that there is no difference between counterfeiting and inflating the amount of dollars in the system. Absolutely. It's just that one we say is fine because the Federal Reserve is doing it with the sort of implicit um, OK of the U.S. government. And the other is a person in their basement, you know, that's right, uh, doing it on the down low. But it's the same thing. And then I heard you talk about there was a time where um, when um, Africa was being colonized that Mm. I forget what region, but they used glass beads as a form of payment. And the people coming in were like, word, we've got glass manufacturing (laughs) places, you know, back home. We'll just make more of these beads. Yeah. And when you think about the things that that money represents our time and our energy, right? You do something, you you specialize, as you said, your specialization creates something. And then somebody who doesn't want to specialize in that, that specializes in something else, gives you money. It's a call on that good or service. And you give them that thing. So if you can just go make these glass beads back home and bring, you know, ships full of them, Mm -hmm. you can slowly milk the efforts of the people that you're counterfeiting their money. And when I heard it said, and again, I also don't imply, I don't think that I choose to look at this with no negative uh, viewpoint, that they're Mm -hmm. they're not doing anything negative on purpose, that this is all good intentions Mm -hmm. just potentially gone awry. But when I heard it explained how you would do it if you were nefarious, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, because you suddenly understand that, that there's this extractive nature of... I'm either getting you to do this for free or Mm -hmm. because if nobody ever realizes that the glass beads are fake, then you just have inflation, Mm -hmm. right? If you give me that thing in exchange for glass beads that the next person goes, but these are counterfeit, then you really lost. That's right. But if I'm just slowly devaluing it because the prices are going up because, wow, there's just so many glass beads everywhere, Um, which first would feel like an embarrassment of riches. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you'd realize, wait, everything is just Mm re-normalized and either I can afford the same thing or again, I can afford less. Um, Then I was like, oh, my God, now I understand how inflation is theft. And then you really do get into, I think it was Andrew Jackson punching a banker in the face. Yeah. You have to understand what happened on Jekyll Island. So it's like before we get to the sort of 
morality side of all this, which is fucking fascinating. And I really hope that we don't run out of time before we get to it. I want to understand Jekyll Island. Why would Andrew Jackson punch a central banker in the face? Like, because I grew up in this system, it seems natural. Yeah. But there was a time where this was like governments, even by government agencies or or government actors were like met with such suspicion and the founding fathers and how they were like, yo, you have to be so careful of governmental overreach. It's like we don't have that same vibe today. Yes. What happened on Jekyll Island? Yes. Okay. Great question. Um, I'd like to first reinforce the point you just made that inflation is legalized counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminalized inflation. <laughs> this, this is yep. not my opinion. This is, in fact, mechanically how it works. Um, and in the piece you're referring to Masters and Slaves of Money, I wrote about this debacle in 16th century Western Africa, where they were using glass beads as money. And I think this history gives you a good foundation for understanding what's happening today. It was really technologically difficult to make glass beads at that time in Western Africa. So they they had reliable and predictable scarcity, a la gold, as we described earlier, but only specific to that region. European explorers arrive and they quickly notice, hey, these glass beads are being used as money to, you know, as a call option on all the wealth this area is producing. We can produce these glass beads in bulk back in uh, European glass making facilities. Very low cost uh, to the point where they started packing ship holes full of glass beads and this occurred over, uh, it was over a 300-year period. They were shipping in these glass beads. So kind of doing it slowly and surreptitiously enough. Um, there was resistance, actually. Um, Africans could identify the counterfeit beads. They would try to only use uh, the authentic ones. The Europeans would introduce, you know, more indistinguishably counterfeit beads. So there was back and forth. But over time, what happened was this multi-century usurpation of African wealth by European explorers through the counterfeiting of money. And what I mean specifically here by counterfeiting is that delta in cost of production, right? The cost of production was high for glass beads in Africa. Therefore, they had reliable scarcity. Therefore, they had reliable market value and utility as money. The cost of production in Europe was low. So they could inflate the supply really quickly and use it to basically disrupt uh, the hard money system, if you will, in Africa. When I say hard money, I mean it's hard to produce, mm. but it was not hard to produce for Europeans, so therefore they could usurp the wealth. Um, and this this points to a key property of money is that the market value of the money is going to converge to its cost of production over time. So if I can mine an ounce of gold for $1,900 and it's selling on the market for 2000 I'm going to mine gold as hard as I can all the way up until my cost of production is $1,999.99, right? So long as there's a profit margin baked in there. Uh, and this also points towards why fiat currency always goes to zero. The cost of fiat currency production is effectively zero. Again, it's an entry on the Federal Reserve's database, right? Control enter, another $10 trillion added to the money supply. So it's almost intuitive through that lens why the market value of fiat currency historically has always converged to zero, which we call hyperinflation. So that's all 
I think a good way to look at it, and that's um, and that's happened many times historically. So it's not just it's not purely that these Europeans are set out with nefarious purposes per se, but it, there's a dynamic in money where you it needs to be costly to produce to support its market value and therefore support a sustainable trading economy. If it's cheap to produce, then it will be uh, the market will be flooded with the money and it will hyperinflate, essentially. And so that process, again, is why people settled on gold. It was the most difficult thing to produce. So the other thing that happens here is that when you're increasing the money supply, um, like it's very common today in the U.S. We think, oh, there's not much inflation. You know, food hasn't gone up a lot, whatever, whatever. But what you're not seeing is that markets, if they're functioning properly, we should actually have price deflation over time. As we get smarter and better and more efficient at making things or providing services, prices should be coming down. So the fact that we're targeting price increases of 2% is shadowing over what may be, we don't know, right? We don't know what... Um, the increase in market efficiency would actually do to prices absent the central bank intervention. So I think this is a very important point too that you know people will try to argue that the degree of it is such that it can be ignored or not worried about. The two percent is not that big of a deal. You know, let them take what they need. But it's overshadowing the opportunity cost, if you will, that's being lost. Like we would have five percent price deflation or more in certain sectors, and so. To get to the why did Andrew Jackson punch a central banker in the face, which he is as someone that grew up in Tennessee. He's my favorite Tennessean for this very reason. I think he also called them a den of vipers and he said he would route them out. He resisted um, or at least he was instrumental in the resistance of the first two attempted implementations of a central bank in the United States. The Federal Reserve being the successful third is because this country was founded on the principles of, which we inherited from the Magna Carta, life, liberty, property. As we've touched on earlier, the central bank is antithetical specifically to the third one, property. Right? It's arbitrarily violating the property rights of some to enhance the property rights of others. There's another way to look at it. So what is that? What is life, liberty, and property? Our life is our future, right? These are the, to take, to lose your life is to lose your future, let's say, right? Liberty is your present. It's your present freedom, right? To lose your liberty is to become a slave, right? And the, the, the spectrum to slavery is very important too. Zero percent tax or theft is a free man, right? Completely owns himself. 100% taxation or theft is a slave. All the fruits of your labor go to someone else. And then, so you've got your life is your future. Liberty is your present. Property is your past, actually. It's how you've spent your past infusing nature with your life and liberty, right? Your self-ownership. You've accumulated fruits of labor. That becomes your property. And so, the central that those are the kind of the three tenets, not only of natural law, but also basic morality. Right? I don't think anyone would sit here and argue with you face to face and say, no, I have a claim on you more than you do. I don't like it's, it's a non reasonable argument. And again, this is this is a priori. Right. This is only you can move your left arm. 
There's no argument that I can formulate that says, no, I have some claim over your left arm and the actions that it takes. Yet we have that implemented in this system that can violate property rights. If I can violate your property rights, I'm effectively saying your self-ownership is limited and that I have a higher claim on your life than you do. This is like the rotten core at the heart of modern uh, statism. We call it capitalism, but it's not. It's state marginalized capitalism with a communistic institution at its core called the central bank. So Andrew Jackson was a man that understood these principles. He understood the importance of adhering to life, liberty, and property for a, not only uh, is it pragmatically the most wealth generative model of human organization, but it's also the most humanitarian and ethical, right? It offers the greatest equality of opportunity to actually have property rights in yourself, in your time, in your labor. So, and it's, you know, thank goodness it's that way. Thank goodness the ethical humanitarian choice is also the most wealth producing choice. Otherwise, we'd have a really ugly dilemma on our hands. Uh, I think Andrew Jackson and our founding fathers understood these three pillars of life, liberty and property as the most important components of human organization, that if we adhere to them, we can actually create modes of being that increase our wealth, which is to say increase our satisfactions, right? The heart of man is never satisfied, but this is the way to optimize the satisfactions of human beings and create a mode of being that's focused on trade, cooperation, interdependence, as opposed to warfare or fighting. So it's to boil it all the way down. It's like we can either cooperate and trade. That's it. Cooperate and compete. It's a very important part of entrepreneurship, right? It's competition and trade voluntarily with inviolable property. And we generate wealth. That's a positive sum game. The pie is growing or we can violate the property of one another and fight over it. And this gets to that old Bastiat saying that when goods and services don't cross borders, soldiers will. Right. We need we're all seeking something for nothing. If we don't channel that human action into these uh, productive channels of trade and entrepreneurship, then we end up over here uh, in violence, coercion and compulsion. The truth is hitting your career goals is not easy. You have to be willing to go the extra mile to stand out and do hard things better than anybody else. But there are 10 steps I want to take you through that will 100x your efficiency so you can crush your goals and get back more time into your day. You'll not only get control of your time, you'll learn how to use that momentum to take on your next big goal. To help you do this, I've created a list of the 10 most impactful things that any high achiever needs to dominate. And you can download it for free by clicking the link in today's description. All right, my friend, back to today's episode. Okay, so you've got Andrew Jackson trying to root out the Vipers. Um, I'm assuming he thought of them as Vipers because they can redistribute wealth, which is a violation of your property. That's right. Why then do we end up creating the central bank and... Why did they meet in secret? Like what? Give us a little bit of background on that meeting on Jekyll Island. I know they were pretending that they were going on a hunting trip. Yeah. And 
there's it's such a weird confluence of things that are happening right now. You have this sense of like distrust of people are working behind the scenes against you, but you also have the sense of redistribution of wealth is good. Like it's it's a a very confusing time right now. And this is still confusing to this day. People will argue with you um, that this, you know, the Fed was set up with very good intentions and that this whole which, by the way, this book, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, this was formative to my understanding of central banking. And this is pre-Bitcoin that I got into this. So I would really just encourage the audience to go check out that book. Uh, it's, a, it's a big book, though. You can also read an abridged version called Dishonest Money, I think was one that I gave to my family and friends. And it sort of encapsulates the gist of it. Um, but to your question... I think, based on my study of that book, that it was done in secret and it was done over a holiday weekend because this was a time when people still understood the ideological importance of life, liberty and property. We'd learned a lot of lessons from central banking and its failure and its tyranny in England and and even before that. So it was still fresh enough on the human mind that we we were resistant to its implementation. Um, but as far as why it got pushed again, it's just something for nothing principle, right? There, if you could found an institution or a business, and by the way, all organizations are businesses, right? Governments are businesses, institutions are businesses. They're all property strategies, as I call them. If you could establish an institution that could generate perpetual profits and be able to paper over its own losses, right? It can never sustain a loss. Would you not have a pretty large incentive to establish that organization? I mean, the equivalent question is if you could magically wish for a money printing machine right here on your table, like, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you, once you had it, wouldn't you run that machine until it was absolutely blowing smoke and sparks out the side of it? I mean, that's central banking in a nutshell. Is it human beings in this pursuit of something for nothing or in this pursuit of um, pursuit of wealth, frankly, right? The most powerful incentive in the world. We have tried to rationalize and formulate different ways of creating uh, socioeconomic structures that favored the few that could understand it and create that privilege for themselves at the expense of others. All right, I think this is where Bitcoin needs to enter uh, <laughs> stage left here. So I have a quote from you. Um, actually, I'm going to start with a paraphrase uh, from Alan Greenspan. This is you paraphrasing Alan Greenspan. Um, that sets us up then for your quote. So Alan Greenspan, again, this is a paraphrase. A sound store of value must be made illegal. Otherwise, fiat currency would not be competitive. So you've got this idea of so a sound store of money you talked about, you drop that coin, but basically that it's. The amount of it is fixed. Inflexible supply. Okay, so that's sound. Now, this is your quote, which uh, I love and I think sets us up for understanding why the Bitcoin guy who has Bitcoin tattooed on the inside (laughs) of his arm, like the most painful place to get a tattoo, (laughs) uh, says this. This entire system we've built is a complex of unintended consequences. And Bitcoin is an immune response from the collective economy. So if we buy into the idea that 
they didn't have bad intentions to create the central bank. They don't have bad intentions to make the print go burr. <laughs> they just like they're trying to they're trying to policy their way to mm-hmm. something that's far more stable, which I actually get. And when I put like my they don't have bad intentions hat on, mm-hmm. I'm like word like I get what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I'm grateful that. I've grown up in a super stable environment where I was able to go from, you know, sort of lower middle class to generating real wealth in my life. Mm -hmm. So for me, it worked. Right. Mm -hmm. I was able to jump class, like all the things that I was promised with the American dream. I was actually able to do. And so I'm like, yo, that stability is amazing. Um, I didn't ever have to um, use weapons to build my company, which Mm -hmm. is a whole side thing that um, I've talked about before, where I had former drug dealers working for me. Long story. There's a whole reason why I think it's amazing to give people a second chance. So anyway, they were telling me stories of like people trying to confiscate their product, right? Mm -hmm. Which for me would have been protein bars. So it was like, whoa, the thought of somebody showing up with shotguns (laughs) to take my protein was like, that's crazy. That's That's a hard way to do business. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So it's like, okay, this is all work for me. I like this stability. So when I have that hat on, I'm like, I get what they're at least trying to do. But when you try to engineer a system, whoa, like the number of things that go wrong where you can change, whether it's ecological and you're trying to do something and it has, you know, 10 different knock on effects or whether it's with money and it has different knock on effects. Um, Why, though, is Bitcoin the immune response? Yes. Um, It's funny you read that line. I don't. Barely remember you writing said, that. Well, you said, <laughs> well, I heard you say it. So oh, whether you've it, okay. read it or, or written it or not, I can't okay. say. But in a podcast, <laughs> you said. Um, so these principles that the United States was founded upon, again, that have been refined from the past, from like the Magna Carta. One of the most important, if not the most important, is that principle of inviolable property. Meaning, again, property as the relationship between yourself and the value you create or the fruits of your labor, which is the foundation of the scaffolding that lets you climb the socioeconomic hierarchy, right? From, as you said, lower middle class to where you are today was because you knew (laughs) that you could hold the value of the value you created and use it to scaffold yourself upward. If that foundation were not stable, right? At least to some extent, there would be no way for you to have upward mobility. So again, it's we're back to property rights being the basis of civilization itself. They're pretty good here. They're pretty good in the US. You can open a bank account. You can put dollars in it. Your property rights will be violated by inflation. When the Federal Reserve is printing money, you're going to now need to outpace inflation with some other investment. Otherwise, you're property will be diluted. You don't have full property in that money because if you try and wire it to, you know, I don't know what countries are on the OFAC list today, Iran or something, they'll block you and say, no, you can't do it. So you don't have full rights in that property. You are being surveyed. You don't have full privacy, but you have pretty good property rights, right? Relative to the rest of the world. Bitcoin is the first permanent implementation of this principle we've been refining throughout human history of inviolable property. It actually cannot be violated in any way. No one can produce more than 21 million Bitcoin. So it's, and I've argued this in some of my writing that although it's an invention, we've actually discovered something with Bitcoin. We've discovered 
absolute scarcity for money. So if we're back to those five properties of money in terms of scarcity, Bitcoin is absolute. It's not relative, right? It doesn't change. We know with, you know, nothing's, um, people argue with me about this. It's not absolute. Everything's probabilistic. True. Uh, Bitcoin has proven itself over 13 years of flawless operation that it does two things essentially perfectly, which are turn out a block on uh, one block of transactions on average every 10 minutes and adhere to a supply cap of 21 million. So it's the first fixed supply money there has ever been. And I don't think you can recreate that because by definition, money is a centripetal network effect. So we tend towards one. So for the same reasons we had one analog gold, we're likely only to have one digital gold. Um, This, so your property rights cannot be violated by inflation because no one can change the supply cap. If you hold a thousand Bitcoin, you hold 1000 of a possible 21 million forever, right? You have a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply. You cannot get that level of assurance with any other asset in the world, full stop. Doesn't exist, even with gold. You can hold all the physical gold you want. You're still not immune to uh, some technological breakthrough. We figured out figured out how to produce gold in the lab very cheaply. We mine an asteroid, we mine the ocean floor, we find a new South American bonanza, whatever. You're not immune to any of that. But with Bitcoin, and again, it's a bit of a bet because it's only 13 years in, but it's done these things perfectly so far. If it continues to do what it's been doing for 13 years, you have a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply. So you have an inviolable property right. Further, this is, again, property is the relationship, right? We've historically always needed an enforcer. So you need the police force. You need the military to make sure no one comes into your house and violates your relationship with your house. We needed if maybe not necessarily a monopoly on violence, but you needed a protection producing enterprise, which historically is the role of government to enshrine your property rights. The problem, of course, is that they willed the power to violate your property rights as well, which historically has been very tempting for governments and bureaucrats. They typically give into it and governments get overthrown over time. That's been the cycle we're locked into. Bitcoin's the first property right independent of the monopoly on violence or independent of uh, physical protection production. It's an informational property, right? It's just an alphanumeric string. You can store it in any information bearing medium, put it in your mind, put it on your computer, put it in a song, do whatever you want with it. And there's no, the enforcement is done by the mining network. So the algorithm and the free market competition that's going into Bitcoin mining is effectively displacing the protection that government was historically necessary to provide in Bitcoin itself. So it's this radical new, you know, some people have called it a metaphysical property, right? And that it's just an information bearer asset. So gold was really good as a bearer asset and that, you know, assets equal liabilities plus equity, the accounting equation. Gold was pure equity, If I hold gold, it's no one else's liability. That's really important, right? I have no counterparty risk if I hold physical gold. If I hold dollars, that's not true, right? I have this liability to the Federal Reserve, to the bank, whoever, whatever counterparties are are involved. Bitcoin's the same as physical gold, but it's non-physical, right? It's informational. 
So it, it opens up this entire new sphere of possibilities and how you custody it. You can custody Bitcoin in these multi-signature schemas that are all but immune to theft. You can chop the key into a bunch of pieces and distribute it geographically. You have these military-grade protocols wrapped around it. And it gives you an absolute... It, it is the highest implementation of human self-ownership we've ever had. Right In the past, it's been scribbles on the American Constitution or the Magna Carta. And like, we'll always adhere to this document, no matter what. But then, you know, a few hundred years go by. And we're like, well, well, you know, let's tweak this or change that or add this. Bitcoin's taken those principles we've used with foundational documents historically, and it's permanently emblazoned them in computer code. In unbreakable code, basically, is another way to think about it. So it's the invention of inviolable property, right? It's no longer a principle. We've, we've grabbed this principle out of the space of ideas and we've anchored it into reality via the thermodynamic competition of Bitcoin mining. And it, it is so radically new and hard to get your head around that it's shattering worldviews worldwide. Bitcoin, I think you would agree with this. I view Bitcoin as a deflating currency. Fixed supply. Correct. But as more people want it, its value is going to go up, mm -hmm. which if that is true, then the longer I hold it, the more pizza that same single Bitcoin yes, will buy. Exactly. So that has changed my behavior. I think of yes. dollars as like, whatever, like yes. spend it. But when I have a Bitcoin, I'm like, I don't want to mess with it. This is time preference. Yeah, I want to hold it. So because of that, my base assumption is that if you have a deflating currency mm -hmm. that thusly buys you more over time, mm -hmm. it, it's so counterintuitive because deflating makes it sound like it's bad. It's getting smaller, but it's actually growing more powerful. Exactly. It's buying me it's more. Monetary dilution is inflation and monetary enrichment is deflation. Yeah, God, The yeah. inflation deflation is a Keynesian euphemism, actually, to sell the idea of inflation. Yes. Well played yes. because my brain is having a very hard time. <laughs> okay. So my Bitcoin is growing in purchasing power yes. over time. And that has already changed my behavior. Mm -hmm. So I know that it's going to change more people's behavior. My base assumption is that will cause a decrease in innovation because people are like, dude, your iPhone is cool, but like, ah, uh, I'd really That's, rather wait and see what my growing powered Bitcoin will That's get the leap I want to challenge right there, yep. where we say less, we say more saving equates to less innovation. Yes. I think it's the exact opposite, okay. actually. Why? So, the, the nature of saving itself is that we are delaying present consumption mm -hmm. and looking further into the future and engaging in longer-term production processes. Yep. Now, the Austrians describe this as the more roundabout the production process, which is equivalent to saying the more finely we uh, engage in the division of labor. So you have one long production process to produce a thing. The more finely we chop that up amongst ourselves, the more productive we become. So that um, effort, that impetus to push into longer production processes that are more, more roundabout and more finely divided, that is innovation. That is how we, we become more than the sum of our parts. We accomplish mm, greater results. That doesn't results feel true to me. With less so efforts. So when I... But that's it. There's... You actually think inflation drives innovation. Can I give any kind of example? Uh, well, so I'll tell you why I think inflation, and look, 
trust me when I say I am at the edge of, I am thinking through this in real time. Mm -hmm. So this is not me saying, I believe this, okay. and, but this feels right to me. So when I think about what gets people to innovate, it is if I bust my ass and I come up with something better than other people, I get more value from people mm -hmm. in a very fair exchange where they think they're taking advantage of me because they'd rather have this thing that I've created yep. than they would, they want the money. As do you of them. Exactly. And so I'm like, oh exchange. word, this is amazing. Yeah. So now where, what we get into is right now with an inflating currency, people have just a sense of like, oh, this money is, it's, it's inconsequential. It, it, God, this is going to sound stupid, but a dollar is only worth a dollar. Mm -hmm. Whereas a Bitcoin to me feels very precious. It's like mm -hmm. this gets, becomes $2, $3, $10, $100. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, uh, I don't really want to spend this. Okay. Because of that, I don't have the ease of like buying that I would. So now my evaluation of the thing that you've created, I'm way more scrutinous. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe it just raises the bar on innovation, but it, I think you're saying Feels it's a like return it to value investing, perhaps. So for a long time, people would only invest in projects that created real economic value, right? And if your money is holding purchasing power over time, that's a good bar. You could think about it like this. Imagine we're on a world run by Bitcoin. So there's one hard money, fixed supply, everyone uses it in the world. Every successful economic project, every entrepreneur, every innovation that successfully increases productivity, that accretes to the purchasing power of everyone's money. So in a world where your money's constantly losing purchasing power, that is not happening. So you get more junk, I guess. There's more of a, there's, there's actually... The incentive, and this is related more directly to the violation of property, but there is an increased incentive to consume rather than invest. The more rapidly you, d you violate property rights mm -hmm. and the more that it's permanent rather than intermittent. So if I know with a high degree of certainty that you keep 20% of whatever that I make, then I have a 20% less incentive to engage in investment rather than consumption activities. And again, that's what we're doing when we print money. We're actually inducing or incentivizing consumption actions over investment actions. And investment actions are what drive innovation. It's savings that underpin investments. Investments in that long-term production structure I, I suggested. There's also R&D in there, experimentation, right? We're trying new things. That is what creates innovation in the real world. So if anything, the innovation that we've seen in the 20th century has been in spite of central banking, not because of it. But it gets very murky here because it's very easy. You could swap someone else into the seat right now, some Keynesian economists, and they'll give you a completely different interpretation mm. of economic history, right? They can go through the historical facts and trace their own arrow of causality and say, here's what happened. And we're back to Copernicus. Back to Copernicus. But here's what the, the libertarian philosophers did. They said, you can't mistake economic history for actual economics. Mm. Economics is more of a rationalistic science. You, you have axioms. Man must act. Mm -hmm. Man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction, all other things being equal. Like these axioms, it's like geometry. Why I, so I didn't understand, why can't I take economic history as economics? If you take economic history, you can describe... That actually happened. So you're saying you can't take the interpretation... 
of economic it's a social science, right? You cannot mm-hmm. mathematize economics in the same way as you cannot mathematize psychology. I can't sit here and tell you the reason you're doing this is because there was a, a linear chain of causality. And if we repeated this experiment again, the economic experiment would unfold in the same way. It's not possible. Because there, it's just too complicated there's to no predict constants. human interaction. There's no constants in human action, right? So we know water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. That's a constant. We can build a framework of knowledge around that. There are no constants in human action. It's constantly changing. It's all, all these psychologies interlinked into the market process. So we're going to derail on this, but I'm just going to plant the flag to say, I think there will be a day where we actually realize that human interactions are completely predictable. Free will is a total myth, but that doesn't help us now. That could be a pretty bleak day. I don't find it bleak because the experience will never feel like that, but that's going to completely derail us. Because right now I don't, free will is seems to just be provably an illusion so we will definitely get derailed on this <laughs> <laughs> yes if, um oh. all right so instead of derailing okay. on that let's so this copernicus idea of we have a theory the theory is going to completely shape how we interpret things and thusly yes. how we act so what is the i call that a frame of reference mm-hmm. Frame of reference is everything. It is the distorted mirror that we perceive reality from. And to your point, it's individual. So everybody's got a frame of reference that's going to dictate how they think about what they see. And that will actually impact how they feel, which will impact what they do. What is the... So are the the two, using my language, frames of reference that we're thinking about here, the Keynesian model versus the Austrian Let's talk about a very fundamental theory, which is the theory of the individual. Now, this is something that we take for granted today. We assume that you're an individual, I'm an individual, we're all freely interacting. Mm. But in ancient times, it wasn't this way. Actually, it was the family that was considered to be the primary social unit. They called it the uh, paterna familias. And everyone was basically perceived as uh, a unit in that family that you you served the ends of that family uh, it was religious in nature this was in ancient Rome it was the religion it was uh, the family and it was property so we're talking about ancient people that sat on one piece of land generation after generation the present living family took care of the ancestors right they worshipped the ancestors they used to burn a hearth. There was a fire that every family maintained on an altar. And the first thing they did every time they would wake up in the morning is stoke the flames of that fire. And so that was to symbolize their property interest in that land that c- carried forward from their ancestors into the present day. And if that fire w- were extinguished, that, were, that was considered to be an equal symbolic expression of the family being extinguished. So the whole primary imagined social unit of the world was the family. The individual did not even exist. Now, this is hard to imagine. The individual didn't exist or it just wasn't the primary way that you thought about it? This is very hard to talk about because what I'm saying, and often we're talking about money, it's the same thing. You're trying to describe water to a fish that's never broken the surface. How much of our cultural programming do we inherit from our parents, from our existence, from our cultural heritage in this world? 
Yeah, but let me ask you one question, because I get where you're going, and I can collectivist versus individualistic societies has real, uh, real world impact. So I know there is a thing where you would feel that me as an individual is very much embedded in a collective, and I have to be thoughtful about that. But nobody would be confused if I poke you and it hurts. It's not like that person would not be able to distinguish between you getting poked and me getting poked. I'm not going there. So let me try to prevent the sidebar. Let's just say this. The individual did not exist as an economic or a socioeconomic conception. Okay. It doesn't mean that you couldn't poke someone and they'd be like, hey, man, don't poke me. Right. A socioeconomic conception of the individual did not exist. One of the family did. It was all centered around the family. And then families eventually stitched themselves together into tribes and clans and ultimately nation states. And that had a lot to do with the unification of religion. But the individual is something that we invented we invented this... The individual as an economic something? As an economic actor. Okay. And from the individual economic actor that came post-Christ, it was with Christ and Paul's analysis of Christ and the moral equality of men that we developed the conception of the individual. And from the individual, we extrapolated that into individual private property rights. So we moved from a world where the family had exclusive property interest in the land. It was also non-transferable. They weren't selling this stuff. They were just uh, having dominion over it. I really think, if anything, it was like territoriality. Like animals are territorial over specific uh, pieces of land. We were basically territory animals, right? We were trying to survive the way our ancestors did. There wasn't much innovation occurring. There surely wasn't a lot of trade occurring. And we had this sort of primitive society. But post-Christ, we invented, as religion was evolving, we invented this conception of the individual. And I'm drawing on a book here by that title, Inventing the Individual. If you want to do a deep dive on it, it explains it in depth. But to gloss over a little bit, let's just say that with Christ came this idea of the equality of souls, that everyone had an equal soul or a moral equality, if you will. And with that notion came the 1215 Magna Carta, life, liberty, and property, that we had this conception of individual property rights so that you as an individual now can stake a transferable claim on assets in the world. And that is what led to capitalism proper, right? So we have individualized property or we have socialized property. And I think the degree to which we print money or the degree to which we have government interference, we are socializing property. And this is causing people to consume rather than invest. It also causes people to misallocate capital. Because Because of the tragedy of the commons? No, because again, if you keep 20% of everything that I make, Mm -hmm. right, that's a socialized property, right? You're taxing me. Yeah, but why would that sketch me out? If this is an invention, it doesn't sketch you out. It reduces my incentive to invest. If I can only keep 80% of what I earn, I have a reduced incentive to invest. Have you heard Ray Dalio's take on this? So he talks about China as a collectivist culture. And he's like, look, you can rail against them and think that they're crazy, but they think that we're crazy and dealing at the individual level and any one individual thinking, whoa, you can't tread on me. I'm an individual. Mm -hmm. Whereas they're like, you're out of your mind. Like you live as a part of the collective. And if killing you is better for the collective than kill you, we must. Mm -hmm. And while admittedly those words I'm putting in Ray Dalio's mouth, his whole thing is, 
I know that you look at China and you judge them and think that they're crazy, but just know that they feel exactly the same in the opposite direction. So what I'm trying to figure out is when I look at if being a part of the collective makes me less likely to invest, the only way I can wrap my head around that is if it's the same thing as the tragedy of the commons. I don't want the collective to be able to take things from me. Therefore, I'm going to do something with it, spend it in this case, not invest it, just so that I could reap the immediate benefits of that. And the collective now doesn't have anything that they can take from me. If that isn't it, I don't understand where you're going. I don't think it's a matter of being part of the collective or not part of the collective. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is the integrity of your property interest. And let me specify what property is. The exclusive power to control an asset, mm -hmm. right? You get to say what happens with your cup. No one else gets to say what happens with your cup. But prior to Christ, that didn't that, exist. No, that is property, right? Well, it existed between the family and the land. Yep. And it was not exactly transferable. Now, there was trade occurring between families and among clans and whatnot, but we didn't have this established, legally protected, morally protected notion of the individual's right to own property and transfer and trade with others. So I'm not saying that this is participating with the collective or not participating with the collective. It's about justice. It's about people keeping what they earn, the value that they create. This is the entire premise of libertarian philosophy. And so pre-Christ, we didn't have that atomized individual as an autonomous socioeconomic actor did not exist. Post-Christ, it comes in, comes into being, right? 1215 years later, mm -hmm. we signed the, Mag King John signs the Magna Carta, life, liberty, inviolable property. You started that down this path though when I asked about the, the Copernicanian. That's like, where I'm going. We're, we're going to take these two frames of reference. And so I'm tracking that I've got the individual frame of reference and I've got the socialist, I think, yep. frame of reference. Yes? Yes. I'm tracking so far? Yes. Okay, so what I care about in there is what behavior is elicited when you take that frame of reference. Right. So you could think of the individual, mm -hmm. the fact that we sit here right now, you have bank accounts, you have assets, you can sell those in the marketplace with other cell-owned people that also have accounts and assets. We take all that for granted, Yep. but it's premised on private property rights, which is premised on the socioeconomic conception of the individual. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we take all this for granted, so we, it's hard to even talk about. But when you get to that, you get to private property rights, you've now entered a world where we have higher intensity exchange occurring, right? P more people are trading more stuff. Because more people have a greater incentive in the assets that they own. They know that it's not being socialized away from them. Now, this is obviously true more in the Western world than it is in many other parts of the world. But I would argue that's the reason the West has been such a successful economic story. Because the reason we've become so wealthy is because we've engaged in higher intensity exchange and had a deeper division of labor. And all of this is premised on this. You could think of this as live action role playing. We are pretending that individual private property rights exist all the time. And we don't even know it. We know it when we give our keys to the valet and just assume the guy's gonna give our car back, right? Like we have a legal structure in place. There's ownership documents between you and that car. Um, all of these things we sort of take for granted that are just embedded in, in how we actually act. So this is an enacted theory, right? We, we observe the sun rising and falling 
and we reinterpret the data when we look at it Why with a different theory. Why do you want me to know this? What I'm trying to say is this live action role playing, this imaginal structure, this is different than imaginary. Imaginary is like you bring a pink elephant to mind. Mm. Imaginal is a little kid tying the blanket around their neck, picking up a stick and pretending to be Zorro. Okay. We're all doing imaginal all the time. You are the CEO of impact theory or whatever it is. That's an imaginal role. These people that listen to you and what you have to say, those are imaginal roles too. These imaginal roles that we take on change how we relate to the real world. Mm -hmm. So the invention of private property rights leads to capitalism. First of all, led to the Magna Carta, which was a precursor to the U.S. Constitution. We have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness instead of inviolable property. And this has created the economic division of labor and the capitalism we see in the world today. The wealth we have created, the innovation. All of these things are born from this imaginal conception of the individual as a single autonomous economic actor. And I'm trying to say this because I think it's very important that we are human beings. We're running a lot of software. It's stacked. And a lot of it we take for granted. So when I read I, the book, Inventing the Individual, that blew my mind. The idea that the individual actually did not exist at one point. And then when we invented it, we created real economic consequences in the world. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That is very mind-blowing. Now I want to state why I think that you're bringing this up when I'm trying to figure out, one, embedded in the context of what should people do with their money and what ought the money system be. Here's the prediction that I think what you're telling me makes about your worldview, that it was suboptimal to think in a more collectivist way. It was far more optimal to invent the idea of the individual, even though it's imaginal. Mm -hmm. And from that comes the idea of individual property, the Magna Carta, even to some extent, the American democratic experiment, which is something I want to get into. Mm -hmm. And so these things are a progression. We're getting better, which I think you would define as by owning my property, richer is going to confuse people. I've heard you go down that path before. We'll just need to define it. But even wealth is confusing. Like when I tell people that my goal used to be to get wealthy, I'm like, God, I know what they're hearing. (laughs) So I know what you mean by that. Like, Anyway, I won't derail us on that because even trying to put words to it is very difficult. But I'm with you spiritually, but Mm -hmm. I want to keep going on this. So we invent the individual. It's better than where we started because of this idea of individual property rights, which Mm -hmm. gives us the incentive to invest our energies into a highly specific way. Being an architect, making shoes, running a media company in my case, whatever. We get highly specialized. The whole world gets to take advantage of all these people doing highly specialized things to a freakish degree. When I think about my, the level of my ambition, it's, it borders on pathology. Uh But I find that utterly fascinating that nature has created that. I've tried to turn it off. I don't want to. It's way more fun when I have this wild ambition and ah, more, bigger, better, do things cool. By having individual property rights, we get to harness that internal engine that people like me, you, and gazillions of other people have to create, and we're incentivized, we get an echo back from the world of wealth, where I have more optionality maybe is a good way to explain wealth. Yep. Access to things that matter to me at a, a hierarchy of needs level. I can have a warm house, food in my belly, certainty of food in my belly tomorrow, certainty of roof over my head tomorrow, all that. So, we're, we're making progress. And now, again, prediction of what I think you're trying to convey is that as you revert through the modern monetary systems, the yep. Keynesian economics of, hey, let me inflate the money supply to keep things moving. I know Tom thinks that a little mm-hmm. bit of inflation is good because it creates innovation. In fact, he's moronic because it's moving us back to this pre-individual. I like to speak in very aggressive language. <laughs> it's moving us back to this pre-individualistic place where people are going to invest less, they're going to specialize less, mm-hmm. they, we're going to be less able to capitalize, harness their ambition mm-hmm. because they don't get back from the world the keepable fruits of their labor. Yes. How did I do? You did pretty well. You're not moronic, though. You have just been that indoctrinated. That might As be moronic. hundreds of millions of us have been, myself included, before getting into Bitcoin and all this stuff, there is a reason, there is a pseudoscience called Keynesian economics that's infiltrated all modern universities funded by central banks, and its exclusive purpose is to justify the printing of money and the legal monopoly, right? It's, 
it's a very perverse cycle because you get a system that can steal funds from people and then you use the stolen funds to fund university curricula that so just don't get confused it steals buying power purchasing power that's the only power that really matters yeah but i economy. think people get lost in that because they're like nobody's stealing money from me I deposited $100. I still have $100. Well, the tax. price of beef has gone up 50% in the past 24 months. So if you're a beef eater, you've been stolen from by 50%. And It's go- easy to get people to understand taxes theft. It It's more complex. But anyway, as long yes. as we're in agreement that they're stealing via buying power, yes. I'm with you. Stealing purchasing power. That's right. So you are correct. However, I would like to take it a step further. Because what we're saying here is that when we print money... Again, that's the point I cannot overemphasize. You are only violating individual private property rights. You are disturbing my power to control the assets that I otherwise could, Mm. right? And this comes in the form of price inflation, right? If I'm a steak eater and I've saved up to buy two years of steak and the price of steak goes up 40% because the central bank printed money, well, they've stolen steak from me effectively, mm. right? Or a house, which is something or a lot anything, of people are yeah, complaining Insert about your favorite right asset here. I'm just picking steak because I'm yeah. a steak eater. Um, so that is all well and good. It's incentivizing all the negative things you highlighted, right? Um, overconsumption rather than investment. Overutilization of assets rather than pres- preservation of capital because I... There's a deeper reason there, but let's just leave it at that. And then misallocation of capital. So, Because changes, governments suck at using my money. Yeah, it, it disturbs what's called the price signal. So you could basically think that the configuration of consumer preferences is always changing in the world. People always want different stuff all the time. The production structure is constantly trying to adapt and map on to that new configuration of consumer wishes, mm-hmm. right? It's trying to satisfy consumer wants or consumer wishes. The degree to which you socialize property or violate property or steal, it inhibits the ability of the production structure to adapt. So you get misallocation of capital. Uh, This leads to a lot of waste and stuff in the world. But as bad as all those things are, the point that I really find deeply fascinating and whose work I'm drawing on here is it's a book titled A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism by Hoppe. It's a very dense book, but... um, it is deduced, right? He's deduced. This isn't an observation of economic history and reading someone's opinion. These are deductions from economic axioms. So it's hard to read, but the insights you gain are extremely powerful. There's a fourth consequence to the violation of private property or the socialization of property. And that is that you have now stopped the degree to which you're violating property is the degree to which you are not rewarding productive members of society. And you are rewarding political actors in society. People that are, and I've said this before, the legislator's pen cannot create wealth, it can only reallocate wealth. Mm. So the degree to which a legislator can become wealthy at the stroke of a proverbial pen, which is the passing of laws, policy, etc., there is an incentive to shift from a productive role in society to this non-productive, extractive role. And the degree to which that uh, becomes larger is the degree to which more people are drawn into non-productive roles. So what you're saying is there's a a non-producer, right? We're rewarding non-productive activities when we print money or when we confiscate property uh, in any way. So... The thing that I'm fascinated with here is this 
money being such a fundamental technology to human affairs, it's used to hide the widest spread violation of private property rights we've ever seen through this global concerted action of central banks or semi-concerted action. They're all inflating their currencies. People that are on the ground saving are being taxed through this scheme. We are effectively, through the corruption of this economic fabric we call money, we're actually corrupting our own individual character development. That now people coming into the world that might otherwise be a baker or an engineer or some productive activity might instead choose to go over here and be a, a statesman or a politician or some other extractive role. And the degree to which we're violating property in that monetary system is the degree to which they're incentivized to take on political roles rather than productive roles. Such that the corruption of this technology that's so fundamental to our human being leads to the corruption of our character and the corruption of who we are. It's like a breakdown or corrosion of the moral composition of society through the debasement of currency and the violation of property. That's what I'm deeply fascinated by and hopefully talking about and helping spread awareness about to prevent. Okay, so then I think we're gonna have to get into axioms. So as axioms were something that I came to understand very, very late, I will give people a very quick primer. An axiom is the base, the farthest down that you can take something and there's nothing more below that. So Primary humans are an active species, yep. something like that. It's a, a base thing. And now from there, everything is gonna make Two sense. parallel lines never touch. That's an axiom of Euclidean geometry. There we go. Okay, so getting into the axioms of what ought to be. You say you, sh you try not to should all over people, mm -hmm. but you obviously have a sense of how things ought to be, at least as it relates to money. Um, what are your axioms on how the world ought to be? These are not my axioms. Um, I could just name a few from libertarian philosophy. Now, if you ask why, me... Why would you say they're not yours? Well, I'll name a few that I've read from libertarian philosophers. They're not mine. You're just saying you didn't think of them? I didn't originate them. Sure, I sure, sure. Them. But I want to know what, what do you think is the, the whatever number I'm going to give like you the is answer, thing. like what I think actually are economic axioms, mm -hmm. and then I'll give you the natural law ought answer, which okay. is more of a moral moral axiom, if you will. Uh, I can't name all the, the Austrian economic ones, but man must act is the most fundamental. So this is to say action is the purpose, purposive use of means to attain ends. That's what we're doing all the time, mm -hmm. right? You think about what you're going to do with your day. You decide you're going to need pants to go out in public. Well, pants become a means to the end of going out in public. Right? You eat some food, that's a means to the end of going to do the next thing you're doing. Mm. We're constantly selecting valued ends and then choosing means to get to that end. One of the biggest breakthroughs in my life of understanding humans was when I read from a biologist, humans are an active species. Yes. I was like, oh, damn. Like, so I'm with you. As an yes. axiom, to understand people, you mustn't, we'll never just sit still. And, and I tweeted this today, actually. Inaction is an impossibility. To choose to not act is an action. You have decided that given all of the possible things you could do in the world, you'd rather just sit here. Mm. That is means to a certain end. Maybe I want to meditate. It's just sitting here could be a means to the end of meditation. But you cannot not develop a purpose and select means to pursue ends. You can't do it as a, hum as a living, conscious human being. You can't do it. That's one, act that is the axiom, really, of, of Austrian economics. There's other ones like, um, 
man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction. So all else being equal, I want to get paid now rather than later. If you want me to part with my capital, well, then you're going to pay me something. You're going to pay me an interest rate. And the degree of that interest rate is how much I'll be charging you for that time, essentially, of separation. Um, theft always reduces productivity. This is another one. Um, taxation is theft. So anywhere that theft is occurring, it's reducing and disincentivizing further productivity. That's an axiom because if you're, you're creating a hundred bushels of apples and someone's stealing 10% of them, well, then your productivity has been cut by 10% and their satisfaction came at the expense of your satisfaction. So the net satisfaction in the world has not increased, mm. for instance. Uh, I'll leave it at three. I want to give you the moral one, though. You asked me what I think we ought to do. And this is singularly crystallized in natural law. And it says you can basically collapse all the things, all the, the commandments and everything else into one, which is do not steal. Now, you might say, well, what about murder? Uh, well, if you consider that through this property lens that you own your body, the relationship you have with your body, the exclusive power to control your body that no one else has, this is the most fundamental property relationship. So if someone kills you, then they've basically stolen your life mm. in this natural law sense. Um, if someone puts you in jail, right, then they've taken your freedom to move about. They've stolen your liberty, right? They've taken away your ability to move about. So there's, you don't want to steal that either. And then when it comes to property, you know, all of the assets that you've justly acquired in the world that you've worked to obtain or that you've traded with others that have also acquired them justly. This is, again, justly being the key word. You want people that didn't take from others because that caused someone dissatisfaction. They earned their satisfaction of getting the thing at the expense of someone's dissatisfaction. That's a net negative on the world. Whereas if we trade consensually, as you intuited earlier, earlier, you assume what I have, you want what I have more than what you have. Otherwise, you wouldn't do the trade. And I want the same. I want what you have more than what I'm giving up. It's, that's the inequality of exchange that occurs where we both leave psychically better off. We're at least better off in our own mind. Otherwise, we would have never done the trade. Mm. So the degree to which all exchange is consensual is the degree to which we increase net satisfaction in the world. So... If you just get to do not steal, which means don't print money, don't tax, don't actually steal or confiscate things. I think that is the, in my view, the ultimate ought in the world. It's very clear. Um, I don't know that this will be fruitful, but I'm super curious. I don't know the Ten Commandments off by heart, but I think there's don't covet thy neighbor's wife and love, put no God before me or something mm -hmm. like that. Do, are those workable into that, or do they become a different category of thought? You know, I don't feel qualified to answer that, actually. <laughs> Very fair. Religion is actually one of the things I uh, hoped that we would have time to talk about today, though I don't feel like we're there yet. Uh, well, I've heard I, you... So I want to say one more thing, though. So, again, check out the book. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. My interpretation of it is Christ is essential to the invention of the socioeconomic conception of the mm -hmm. individual. I want to say something, say something about this. You can now strip out the historicity of Christ. Doesn't matter if he ever lived. You can strip out the theology. Doesn't matter if it was God, not God, supernatural, natural, doesn't matter. 
I think we could all agree that it's at least embedded in the social fabric at this point, right? The collective mythology of how we got to here. Christ is a big figure in that story. And now if he was indeed necessary or inspirational to the invention of the individual, and the individual led to private property rights, which led to capitalism, which led to fang stocks, which led to Bitcoin, then all of a sudden you start to see the importance of that imaginal reality we talked about earlier. You know, Peterson says this all the time, we're living in stories. The first time he said that, I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? Of course we're living in stories. Everything's like a narrated sequence of events, but that's not, I don't think that's what he or the people that inspired him like Carl Jung and others think. Mm. They think more like this, that we inhabit mythologies, right? We're, we're doing this live action role playing called private property rights because of this story we have beneath the economic substructure called Judeo-Christian mythology or religion, whatever you want to call it. So I say this because I was turned off to religion a lot. I grew up Southern Baptist and I became turned away from it as I became older and more well-studied, so I thought. But now I've returned in a very fascinating way. It's like, wow, you we have to have these stories to exist. We have to inhabit them. And we're currently inhabiting one. And it doesn't matter. Again, you take out the historicity, take out the theology of Christ. It's still fundamental to get to these things, to get to capitalism, mm. to get to fang stocks, to get to Bitcoin. So there's very pragmatic, real-world consequences, right? We're changing our relationship with each other in the world that's creating modernity based on this live-action, imaginal role-playing we're doing through mythology. Maybe out of ignorance, mm-hmm. I always felt like my... Um, getting wealthy did not take from anybody. I created something they wanted. I mm-hmm. gave it to them at a fair price and that worked out to my advantage in that um, they got what they wanted in that momentary exchange, but I was able to build value in something that somebody else wanted for me. And so I could sell mm-hmm. that to them. Uh, and now where money is, let's say in a world where Bitcoin becomes essentially gold it becomes the Mm -hmm. place where people store their value uh there's only 21 million Mm -hmm. and so now if i'm jeff bezos and i have some just insane portion of that and don't have even really a mechanism to intelligently spend it all Mm -hmm. uh and this is where we probably have to get to people think that jeff bezos has all that money sitting in a bank and of course he does not he would have to sell portions of his company um to get that so does that notion of equities like go away (laughs) like what does that look like yeah so stock markets will continue to exist but i think where maybe your confusion here is again purchasing power versus the supply of money so the purchasing power of money will continue to increase the more wealth we create through free exchange. So although there's only 21 million Bitcoin, it sounds like you know this absolutely scarce number, the amount of purchasing power it can contain is unlimited, right? You can have an unlimited. Each it's not unlimited, right? There is a cap. Like uh, there well, can only be so many we can satoshis produce. per Bitcoin or is that not well, true? Well, you can actually soft fork Bitcoin and divide it further. So okay. to your point, each Bitcoin, and a lot of people don't know this, so this is probably important. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. <laughs> Each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million subunits called Satoshis. If ever that divisibility were inadequate, we're back to that property of money, divisibility. If that were inadequate 
um, liquidity to support economic activity, right? If Bitcoin were global money and one Satoshi were worth, I don't know, a car or something, you can soft fork the code, which is to say uh, it's a, a simple software update. Let's put it that way to increase the divisibility of Bitcoin. So and that's you, built into the code. That's built into the code. So it's Bitcoin is essentially, and that's one of the reasons it's better than gold, infinitely divisible, right? It's so only 21 million units, but you can infinitely divide it. Now, right. does that have the effect of printing more money? No. And this is another common, uh, commonly misunderstood thing. People think that if you can increase the divisibility of it, then all of a sudden you're back into inflation, right? But in, the problem with inflation is the distributive effects of inflation. It's that this group is producing new money for themselves and you're not. When you just increase the divisibility of the money, it's it's a, it's like a stock is split. equally. Stock split, right? You had one share of stock, now everyone has 10. No one was diluted. Everyone was just increased the divisibility of their stock. That's essentially what the soft fork would be to Bitcoin divisibility. Now, this, this, point, this is very important because people get this confused. The more productive we become as a global economy, the more purchasing power Bitcoin can contain. And that is unlimited. That is limited only by the amount of capital we can produce. Money as a... Well, you're going to have to define that then. Because if capital isn't money, what is it? Because Money is a form of capital, produce. but let me distinguish this. Non-money capital. Let's say all the other things, right? The buildings, the stuff... The cars, the factories, the equipment, all of the productive factors in an economy, non-monetary productive factors, which I'm saying loosely is capital here, say non-money capital. Money's a call option on all that, right? It's denominating the value of all these assets that are trading back and forth. But there's also this people are this reservation demand for money. People are just holding money as a call option on all that stuff. So another definition of money, it's an insurance policy on uncertainty. The only reason people are holding money is for its option value. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Therefore, what's the answer to uncertainty? Optionality. If I have no idea what's going to happen, I want the maximum number of options to deal with all possible contingencies. That's what money is. It's another thing money is. So if you think of money, sorry, I'm talking my hands here. Fixed supply, Bitcoin over here, not changing, right? 21 million. But this capital stock, non-money, non-monetary capital growing as we trade and produce more and more, this would imply the purchasing power per Bitcoin is growing, right? It's a call option on more and more stuff. This amount of stuff is limited by us. How much can we innovate? How much can we create? But there's no limitation on Bitcoin itself. And to the point of a Bezos or any individual actor holding an outsized portion of the money supply, that's capitalism. What we have removed, though, is the ability for Bezos, because he has such a large position in the money supply, to change the rules of the monetary network. Right. And that's what the Fed has effectively done. It's like we hold all the gold. We're going to make the rules. Bretton Woods, 1944. We're going to award ourselves this perpetual free lunch on the productive economy for the right of monopolizing money, which sounds asinine because it is, um, that's not possible on a Bitcoin standard. So the fixity of rules, the, the unchangeableness or immutability of rules is the bedrock of peaceful and productive cooperation. And you know this, if you sat down at a table to play poker, 
And if the hand rankings changed every few hands and one guy was deciding, I mean, he would clean everyone out and that would be that. And you would never want to play the game again, right? You would want to go and find another game to play. Poker works as a game because the rules don't change. We can formulate strategies and compete with one another one another in a productive way. But when you, if you want to drive people insane and really create a lot of conflict, just try changing the rules of the game every few hands. Now, this applies to any game, especially money. That's what inflation is doing, right? Nobody knows the rules of the US dollar. How many are in circulation? How many will be in circulation? Who's profiting? We don't even know exactly who the shareholders of the Fed are. What's their dividend? What are their criteria for deciding how much, how many dollars to produce? Who's getting it first? Who's going to be the Fed chair next year? Like all, there's all of this uncertainty injected into managing the asset that's intended to be an insurance policy against uncertainty, that it's just oxymoronic in a way. And so Bitcoin is another way to look at it, is the most certain form of money we've ever had. And if money is an insurance policy for dealing with uncertainty, you would want maximal credibility in the properties of money to deal with that uncertainty. And that is Bitcoin. And that's why people, it's like people think you can ignore it or avoid it, or I don't want to hear about it. But it's like, if you like, if you prefer wealth to poverty, and if you depend on the marketplace for wealth, which is the only generator of wealth, then you have to pay attention to Bitcoin because it's monetizing. Okay. Now to go a layer I hope that answered deeper. the difference between purchasing power and Yeah, support. yeah. In, okay. in fact, let me restate it because as you were saying it, you were fucking melting my brain. <laughs> so it's one of those that's so self-evident that once you hear it, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I couldn't come to that on my own. But so basically it's everything that we create has some value. Mm-hmm. The way that we denominate value of all kinds is with money. So whether yep. that's energy, water, um, air, if you're on Mars, which was a joke I wasn't able to make when you said it the first time because I didn't want to interrupt you, uh, give them mea Hagen. Uh, all of that stuff is denominated in whatever the monetary system is. So in mm-hmm. this case, dollars mm-hmm. or Bitcoin. Uh, so it's an umbrella that by its nature encompasses all things. Mm-hmm. So as you produce more things, then it grows to encompass that you could buy all of those things that everything has value that can be traded for that. Yeah. The more rigid the money supply, the more people will choose to store their time, energy, wealth there. And then if the capital stock, non-money capital stock is growing, then that would be reflected in an appreciation of the purchasing power of money. And this is like what gold gold has been roughly, uh, one ounce of gold is equal to a fine man's suit for like 100 years, right? But if you look at the price in dollars, it's gone from, I don't know, $30 to $1,200. That's interesting. Like that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, oh, I had an insight on that, but now it is gone, hopefully to come back at some point. Um, so going to the sort of next layer deeper. So the book, The Sovereign Individual, which I have not read, but I've mm-hmm. heard you talk about so many times. Um it predicts a lot of things that we're seeing. It predicted mm-hmm. cyber cash, uh, crypto, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but it predicted social media. Mm-hmm. Like, so what? What is the key insight mm-hmm. to that book that allows it to predict all these things? And does it give us any insight moving forward? Yeah, um, it called social media narrow casting, 
as opposed to broadcasting, which I thought was interesting. interesting. Uh, it also predicted that as the digital age started to really progress, that governments would uh, likely resort to pandemic-like um, situations to try and reinforce the validity of their borders. Yikes. Which is interesting. What year was this written? This was written in 1997. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and the unnerving. key insight is again the the logic of violence and the main point that they make is that cryptography allows us to insulate things or defend assets in a way that is many orders of magnitude cheaper than anything ever before so that the cost of defense has plummeted which you could say has a commensurate uh increase to the cost benefit ratio of coercion right all of a sudden you can't why break into the guy's house if you can't steal his Bitcoin? Why invade the country if you can't take their Bitcoin? That type of thing. That it would have a decentralizing effect on government. Because government is as large as it is because it extracts monopoly profits through seniorage, through inflation, through taxation. Right? None of these are mutually negotiated free market phenomenon. These are all imposed. And they're all able to be imposed because people had no alternative. There was no alternative monetary system. It's like you have to have a bank account, right? Before Bitcoin, what else did you do? Hold bury gold in your yard, right? Right. I mean, it's pretty hard to transact gold globally. Um, so that's the key insight. And the book, I'll warn you, it's a bit of a dry read, but I would highly recommend getting through it. I think there's a lot of good insights there. Yeah, that's um, it. The whole idea of decentralization and all of the things that it's going to change. And again, my entry point was NFTs mm. to because for everybody, I think there's going to be something that's relevant to your life that forces you to get to first principles thinking. Mm -hmm. And once you're there and you can predict, then it becomes really fascinating. And as a, a person in media, what I realized, so I got showed something like six years ago. He called it V atoms. And of course, it's become... Uh, NFTs, okay. but he didn't call it that. And he showed it to me and I was like, yo, that's going to change my business like entirely. Mm -hmm. And because when I think about, so we're trying to build the next Disney. And when mm -hmm. I think about that, you start thinking about, we make things in plastic, plush toys, you know, all that stuff. And it's very expensive to make the first one. And so it, mm -hmm. it gets very difficult to like reinforce your brand. And there was this moment back in the eighties where you could do what they called selling from the shelf, where you would promote the He-Man cartoon with toys on the shelf. And so they knew that moms like mine would take you to Kmart and you didn't want to go with her to the bra section. So you go to the toy section and you would see He-Man sitting there and it would tell you that there was a cartoon. And so you wanted the toy and you watched the cartoon and the cartoon advertised the toy. And so it right. got into this um, loop where they could actually make enough money to make the cartoons. So anyway, I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm like, fuck, it's really expensive. They've changed the laws on advertising and all that stuff. So how am I going to crack that nut? I see these V atoms and I'm like, whoa, that's going to allow me to create virtual products mm -hmm. that because I'm again, technology is one way street. Yeah. I had a really hard thesis that people will value digital things in the same way that they value physical things. Mm -hmm. And, but the technology wasn't there, wasn't ready for prime time. Flash forward, obviously NFTs hit and I'm like, Whoa, okay. I recognize this is that V Adams thing. Mm -hmm. Like I'm all the way in. And, but that to be able to 
understand what I could truly do with it, I had to learn the technology, which forced me to understand blockchain, mm. smart contracts, all that stuff. And then you're like, oh my God, now you can predict where all this is going to go. And that technology, the decentralization of things, the trustless nature of it all, mm-hmm. man, it, it's it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the business implications. Like when you start thinking about DAOs, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm a traditional mm-hmm. business guy. And yep. so I'm thinking, whoa, DAOs are really going to come in. It's going to be a fascinating challenge to the traditional way of doing business, which is highly centralized. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm like, all right, is Steve Jobs right? And that by creating this walled garden, you can create something better. Or is Wikipedia right? Or Android, maybe a better um, analogous example, where it's this open system and it's more decentralized and you let anybody use your operating system that wants to. And man, it's the change that's coming and the rapidity with which it's going to hit us is thrilling if you're looking at it through the right lens certainly from a business perspective i've never been this excited in my life ever like this is it's a moment of disruption and so in fact i'm gonna put a slight um i think your enthusiasm for bitcoin captures my enthusiasm for just the moment of disruption that we're living through right now where when you have and because in business it's not scary the way that it's scary thinking about nation states uh until NFTs, I was looking at trying, how do I beat Disney at their own game? Mm-hmm. And so I told my team when we founded the company, I said, our job is to stay in business long enough to figure this out because I don't right now see the path. Mm-hmm. Trying to beat Disney at their own game is, is a losing endeavor. They're mm-hmm. 90 years ahead of us. They have untold billions of dollars in revenue. This is all pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they have billions of dollars in IP. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. Like that's a really tall order. So the only thing we could do is tell better stories. And we were certainly headed down that path of like, I think I see something Mm -hmm. culturally that's happening that they seem blind to. And so that was what we were going to capitalize on. And then NFTs happen. I'm like, oh my God, like the disruption now that's going to happen, they will be way slower than Mm -hmm. will be to adopt the technology, certainly to push it to its extremes. And so as things disrupt, for people that are able to get to first principles faster and think and be able to solve novel problems in a novel way, mm-hmm. you've got like a real shot at something here. Yeah. Now that the way that people are going to think of that moment of disruption, the way that they're going to capitalize on this technology, I think brings us to this idea of morality mm. and the I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I will simply say the note that I took after listening to you speak on the topic Mm -hmm. was I think Bitcoin as God is what I wrote. And you said, I'm not going to call Bitcoin God, but (laughs) uh, and it was the fact that those could even be put in the same. I'm trying to find the exact note that I took. Anyway, it was close to that. So. How do these come together? How does Jordan Peterson begin to influence the way that you think about mm. all of this religion, morality, and what's happening with Bitcoin? Well, that's a lot to unpack there. I would first, the NFT piece. I don't know a tremendous amount about NFTs, but what I would say, and this is in regards to centralization versus decentralization, so many people get lost looking at other alternative crypto assets or NFTs or the projects, thinking that they have the same trust minimized properties as Bitcoin to say that they are truly decentralized. Uh, No one has a political attack vector 
on the network or the good or whatever it may be. It is my strong opinion that Bitcoin is the only asset that is truly uh, credibly exhibited the qualities of decentralization, right? It's undergone a fork war. People have tried to increase the block size, change the supply, all these things. And Bitcoin is kind of tried and true. It's battle tested. So with NFTs, I would just say, and crypto more generally, NFTs and crypto, I don't think decentralization has been achieved anywhere else. So I'll just leave it at that. Just so people, that is the key difference is that Bitcoin is the one asset in the world that no one can control. Um, One thing I wanted to say about the Disney battle, this may work in your favor, actually, is that should we move, should Bitcoin monetize and succeed as I have laid out, this will move us to a much more free market, laissez-faire, capitalistic market environment where something like IP goes away. IP won't exist because IP right now is premised on litigation, right? Someone violates your IP, you go and sue them. In a Bitcoinized world, it's going to be much more cost prohibitive to enforce IP. Why? So that might work in your favor. I don't understand that. Um, Largely because property won't be viable, right? If Bitcoin were the sole money in the world, it would be really hard to sue someone for their Bitcoin. It would be very, very hard to enforce that. Now, had you staked some of that Bitcoin with a local governance that, model? That assumes, though, that governments have essentially vanished from how we think of them now, right? They will have transformed significantly, yes. Um, the point being that it's much less economic to enforce IP. I could just leave it at that. It is, it is a long game thing, and it would be a dramatic change, but might work in your favor trying to take out Disney. Yeah, that's interesting. We could definitely get lost in that rabbit hole, but I don't want to deprive people of yeah. hearing this whole thing about morality. Yes, yes, yes. So very interesting. Uh, we've published a book that I authored with Jimmy Song uh, as a fellow Bitcoiner and a, a group of others called titled Thank God for Bitcoin. Um, this has received some, you know, some criticism because people always go back to this um, quote in the Bible, the love of money is the root of all evil. We're by no means advocating the love of money or the love of Bitcoin or that Bitcoin is God, by the way. We're simply, we wrote a moral treatise on the history of money. I don't even think we mentioned the word Bitcoin until two thirds or three quarters of the way through the book. Um, And we looked at it through a Judeo-Christian lens and what the Bible references money many, many times. And... I think it, it it's written to be very accessible, uh, almost like C.S. Lewis style, very short, punctuated sentences. You can read the whole book in maybe two hours. Um, but the people that do read it report it being very transformational to their understanding of money. Right? You go in with this question, just like, what is money? What is Bitcoin? And you leave with a, a good foundational understanding of answers to those two questions. Um, this... And this is part of my own personal journey, I guess. I was raised in Tennessee. I grew up Christian. I was in church on Wednesdays and Sundays. Um, I was always a very scientifically minded young man. I became very fascinated with astrophysics. When I started reading by myself around age of 11, I went straight to the deep end of the pool. As I like to joke, I was reading Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene. Like, Jesus. Trying, I was just enamored 
looking up at the night sky, like, what is all this? And so I thought, okay, now that I know how to read, I'm going to go try and figure it out. I was reading these books I could barely comprehend, but I think it just sparked this deep curiosity in me. But at the time, it also inspired a bit of an atheism in a way. I was just very scientific, you know, like I thought Christianity was almost a fairy tale at this point. And this this persisted through most of my teenage life. And then later on, uh, I'll gloss over some of this, but I discovered yoga. Yoga was very transformational for me. Uh, Reintroduced me, I guess, to the spiritual aspects of life. I got into meditation Meditation changed my life. I always had trouble sleeping. I was an overthinker with meditation. Once I learned, I'm lights out in 30 seconds every night now, which is a big deal if you can't sleep, you know, uh, reliably. And so I was less scientific, more spiritual, but I had not revisited Christianity until through Bitcoin, actually, I was introduced to Jordan Peterson and his work. And uh, he's, in my opinion, one of the greatest living lecturers. I would call him a philosopher. Um, you know, he really gets at the fundamental nature of things. And he looks at it, looks at the world through many different lenses. Um, and in that way, that method of kind of consilience, right? Looking what he calls multivariate analysis, looking at different topics through different lenses uh, one of the main ones is Ju- the Ju- Judeo- excuse me, Judeo-Christian lens. He lended a lot of credence to religion to me. All of a sudden, it was not this fairy tale that I dismissed in my younger years, and I started to really look into it um, more closely. And I'm still looking. So if it into wasn't it more that closely. fairy tale, then what what does it hint at? So, my current view, and I love Peterson's answer to this that. People often ask him, does he believe in God? And he says, I don't believe in God, but I act as if he exists. So in my mind, that is Peterson putting the emphasis on human action. That's what matters. And if you look at the Austrian school, you'll learn that all human action is an expression of value. To walk across the room implies that you value being on the other side of the room more than you value sitting where you currently are. So we are constantly and unavoidably expressing our values through action. And looking at Christianity, it is this, the Bible specifically, it's not just a moral text, right? It's kind of, If you read it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it goes through this moral development of humanity. There's a lot more kind of barbarism early on and it shows how we learned and developed and changed over time. So I think it points to the emergence of morality. Morality sort of emerges from the rules of the game, if you will. Like we can set our sights on something and work towards it, but the ultimate implementation of the morality really depends on the actual implementation of systems and technologies in a way. So and Peterson has this definition of God. God's such a loaded term. I hate even talking about it sometimes because people, they're either, oh, guy in the sky. Yeah, right. Or God is everything. You know, you can't even talk about it. Uh, Peterson has a number of definitions. One, he says, in that hierarchy of values, right, we're always, we all have this rank ordered set of values in our mind. Whatever we're doing in the moment is an expression of our current value. If I take a sip of water, it means I value a sip of water more than talking in that moment. 
Peterson says that God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. So it's almost like we're expressing God through action in a way. God is kind of like this animating force or principle in life. Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said that a dead thing, only a living thing can swim upstream. A dead thing can go with it. Mm. Maybe I inverted that, but it's... No, no, no. That's right. There's this principle to life that, you know, the entire universe tends towards greater entropy, more disorder, but life is antithetical to that. We actually are an organizing force, right? We we negate entropy. We construct order. Um and that is the ancient idea I got from Peterson's work that's in Genesis and the Bible is that God is that force that courageously confronts the chaos of nature, converts it into good and useful order. And I think that force and that principle is embodied in the entrepreneur. Actually, that's what the entrepreneur is doing, right? You're going out into uncertainty. You're putting your skin in the game. You're staking your life, your capital, your ideas, your reputation, everything trying to pull something out of that unknown or that chaos that's useful and good for others. So I think, and the entrepreneur is the elementary unit of the free market, right? So I think the free market itself, this idea of freedom being a creative principle is very closely connected to God. Um, Another, maybe another way to look at God is this, you know, it's clearly he's eternal. He, I'm not anthropomorphizing him, I'm just using what's there. This principle is eternal, which means it's outside of space and time. What other elements of experience do we have that are outside of space and time? Truth, love, freedom, right? These things that are, they're timeless, right? And they're, they're very important to, to all these things we've talked about, right? These foundational documents, markets, uh, revolutions, they've been fought over these timeless ideals. And I think somehow God is kind of a composite of those in a way. Um, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're all creative principles, right? Truth, as I've argued in a lot of my writing, markets discover truth. They discover prices and tools. Um, love is clearly a creative principle. That's <laughs> how we all got here. Uh, and then freedom, you know, freedom is how we maximize wealth in the marketplace, free trade, as we've talked about today. So this is, I'm way out there on the the philosophical side of things, but to try and bring it home, um, if God is the highest value in a hierarchy of values, another definition Peterson has given of God is the truthful speech, which rectifies pathological hierarchies. And I would define a pathological hierarchy as one that is premised on anything that negates truth or freedom or love. And that is precisely what our current socioeconomic hierarchy is built on. Central banking destroys price signals. We didn't talk about this a lot today, but there's a saying in markets that price is truth. This is the extant supply of capital in the world overlaid with the human demands for that capital is the price, right? It's dynamically updating in real time. It is the truth of what is right now, right? Whatever something is selling for, clearing on the market, that is truth. Um, Another thing markets generate is innovation. So the truth of digging a hole is a shovel, right? It is the best, most truthful, real way we figured out to satisfy that want at that price. 
And then the third thing markets are very heavily involved with is the, the development or promulgation of virtue. So we learn that honesty is more energy efficient in the marketplace than deception, right? If you tell a lie and everyone's experiences to some extent, you tell one white lie, then you have to tell another second lie, maybe to cover it up. And it's just, it always blows up, right? It's not good. You're creating this little fork of reality to try and um, maybe overcome some short-term pain, but you end up exacerbating long-term pain, right? So this is, this is a virtue that's discovered through free exchange and free interaction. Central banking destroys all that. It destroys price signals. It subdues innovation, right? Your entrepreneurs are setting out surprises or supply and demand, but when the central bank's involved, you can't trust the price. You don't know if it's supply and demand or policy. When you can't trust the price, you can't organize your affairs effectively towards satisfying the wants of others. I don't know if this price increases because more people want the table or because this table is really scarce and the central bank's printing a lot of money. Right. So me as an entrepreneur, I may be thinking, oh, people like tables. I want to produce a lot more. I don't know. I can't disentangle the two. So distorting prices misleads entrepreneurs, which unwinds that that process of confronting the chaos of nature, converting it into order. And then it induces moral wickedness. And that all of a sudden your strategy, again, is to get as close to the fiat currency spigot as possible, because that's the lowest effort means of obtaining wealth. If I can just become a shareholder to a central bank, I now have a share in a company, a central bank, that bears perpetual profits to me. I don't have to work. My incentives to work and satisfy the wants of market actors is diminished. So that, I argue, is diminishing to virtue. And so... I think it's evil. You know, I do think central banking is evil. And I don't, I'm not even saying that the institution was set out without intent. I'm just saying that mechanically it, in, it becomes the invariant to human action that causes strategies to be adapted to getting as close to the fiat currency spigot as possible versus being an entrepreneur. It's anti-entrepreneurial. Let's put it that way. Entrepreneurs are the hero of the marketplace. They go on to the hero's journey. They go out, they get their clock cleaned, learn the hard way like I have, as you said you have. And we take those lessons, we embody them, we adapt our strategy and we come back. And hopefully we either create something of value to others and we succeed. Or even when we don't succeed as entrepreneurs, our failure benefits the marketplace. Because other entrepreneurs can say, that guy tried to open an Italian restaurant on that block and it failed. I'm going to not do that. I'm going to go do something else, right? So it's information feedback into the hierarchy of human organization. And central banking distorts and obscures all that. In any financial crisis, what can somebody do with their money strategy to come out the other side better than they went in? Yeah, this is a kind of a complicated question because... One of the things that money is, I talk about this a lot on the show, is an insurance policy on uncertainty. Mm. So by definition, a financial crisis is a time of great uncertainty. So the standard strategy, you know, your grandmother's wisdom would be to save your dollars, save your hard-earned cash. Um, but that gets a little bit more complicated in a very inflationary environment where we are inflating currency very rapidly or counterfeiting currency. 
Uh, <laughs> I love, you throw that out. It's the uh, same thing. So yeah. So we covered that last time, but it's worth for people that are just encountering you for the first time. Why do you say that? What is inflation and why do you call it counterfeiting? Yeah. So inflation quite simply is legal counterfeiting and counterfeiting is criminal inflation. They're mechanically the same thing, but inside of a legal monopoly at a central bank, it's called quantitative easing or some other euphemism that makes it sound really good. But if you or I do it, we get thrown in jail. So it's, it's just making more money. It's just a political institution that has authorized itself the exclusive ability to print money. Mm. And when you print money, you are stealing claims on wealth from other savers of dollars. So... Um, You're the first person that I'd ever heard say it like that. I always thought inflation was a law of physics that we needed, that things just inflated by 2% year over year. That's just the way that it was. Um, So right now, we are in a very inflationary environment. Why? And I would say that's a part of why we're, I would very much call what we're in right now a crisis. The media is trying to soft shoe it, but I think every day it's going to be more and more problematic. No, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, Why are we in an inflationary environment right now? Well, we're in an inflationary environment because we just printed $6 trillion in the U.S. over the past 24 plus months. Which is what percentage of the total supply of U.S. dollars that Uh, existed? You would have to check the exact data on this, but I want to say it's an increase of about 40% of the total supply. Um, For since what, 1913? No, since 2020. No, but I'm saying the 40% of a supply that started in 1913. So this isn't like... Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. So supply issuance starts in 1913. So for the first 108 years of dollar existence, we produced, let's say, again, check my numbers on this, 15 trillion US dollars. And then we just increased that by an additional six or roughly 40% in the past two years. So if you look at the chart, it's very kind of low and slow with a few blurps on the way up and then one huge spike recently. That's so crazy. I don't think people really understand. But before we go all the way down that, we will certainly get more into that. So, okay, we're in an inflationary environment. So how do you want people thinking if grandma is grandma's wisdom is now wrong because of that environment? And so if I because I really am right now, to your point about you want as many options as possible in a time of uncertainty. I am right now trying to be as close to gold buried in my backyard as possible. Yeah. I always feel the need to say, I'm not, I don't actually have gold buried in my backyard. (laughs) I don't want people showing up. Uh, But trying not to be locked up in too many things that are long-term, though full disclosure, I do own a a very substantial amount of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, But for the most part, I'm trying to have my options open. Well, I hope you have it in self-custody, at least. Because yeah. that's buried in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah, Otherwise, I'm, I'm, not, not I'm not to the point that you would be happy, but I'm getting close. Okay. Because if it's Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it's mm. not your Bitcoin, as we commonly say. Yes. Not your keys, not your coin. Um, I, do, I don't want to disparage Grandma. She's right, actually. You know, holding options in the face of uncertainty is the right strategy. It's just that the tool of optimal optionality, if that's a term, is not no longer the dollar. It's decreasingly the dollar. The more you print new dollars, the more you're debasing that instrument's ability to store value across time. So it's, it's less useful as a tool of optionality, as money's intended to be. And as a nice 
barbell to that strategy, Bitcoin is, or gold, physical gold, is a really nice adjunct because as you debase currency, that would indicate, that would basically equal you have more dollars chasing the same amount or relatively same amount of gold or Bitcoin, which would be a higher price uh, of Bitcoin or gold in dollar terms. So I want, on inflation though, I don't want to leave this yet. Uh, it's a very complicated term. People often think price is going up as inflation, which it is. That's a form of inflation, price inflation. There's also monetary inflation, which is the expansion of the fiat currency supply. But to try and the reason I equate inflation to counterfeiting, because it, it doesn't exist without the legal monopoly of the central bank. You don't have arbitrary expansion of the money supply outside of a, a legal monopoly. It just mm -hmm. does not exist. So to try and give people a useful analogy about this, if you slice a pizza into more slices, it doesn't mean that there's more pizza available to eat, right? You've increased the number of slices nominally, but the size and volume of the pizza has not changed. You cannot feed more people with it. You could similarly think of money as a, uh, an option on the global capital stock. And every time you print a new unit of money, you're basically slicing that pizza. If the pizza is the global capital stock, you're slicing it into finer slices or thinner slices. But if I'm printing more pizza, why isn't it that I have more pizza versus... But you're not printing pizza. So pizza is global capital. Yeah. Capital. Stuff, machines, equipment, uh, real assets, let's say. Money is just the option, the call option to acquire those assets. Mm. And so if I increase the number of options available... What I'm doing is taking away the ability of those saving in dollars, I'm stealing from them. It's You're stealing their purchasing power. And that's why I always equate inflation and counterfeiting. It's the same thing as if you could go out and print a bunch of $100 bills, increase the number in circulation. You could go out and buy things that cost $100 that other people went and worked and saved uh, to, to be able to afford those things, you're basically stealing from them, right? You're bidding up the prices of the things that they would otherwise buy. And that's what we've seen taking place over the past 24 months. So if it doesn't create more pizza, then why do people do it? Because people like to have convenient strategies for wealth acquisition. And setting up a legal monopoly to steal from all of society is a really convenient wealth acquisition strategy. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. It's interesting. I th so because I've gone on this journey, I've had to wrap my head around some of the fundamental questions that you ask, what is money being one of them? I think what this is when people, the reason that they print is they're going to go buy assets with what they've quote unquote printed. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, the government works with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve creates the money out of thin air, but the way that they put it into the system is by acquiring assets. So they'll acquire um, government US bonds treasuries. or whatever. Yeah, but those are also born out of thin air. The government can issue debt ad infinitum, as the Federal Reserve can issue dollars to buy government debt ad infinitum. This is the most organized crime syndicate that's ever existed on the planet. Okay, so now that people know that that's the way that we create inflation, mm -hmm. what do we do in an inflationary environment? How do we protect our money? Because right now, I really, I don't allow myself to do overwhelm. Mm -hmm. So I break things up into manageable pieces. But right now, like, I don't know what to do mm. in terms of with my money. So I have allocated about as much capital as I'm comfortable allocating. I'm keeping as much as I'm not worried about being inflated into oblivion. Mm -hmm. And inflation was, as I wrapped my head around that, was the thing that caused me to change my behavior. Because prior to this, I didn't want to think about investing. Mm -hmm. And then when I really began to understand inflation, I was like, whoa, you have to invest your money into something that its value goes up at at least the same pace of inflation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, to your point, it's even though I have the same number in my it's bank account, what it gets me, exactly. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I have to do something. But now I feel like we're going into, I feel like we are in a time of so much uncertainty that I don't know what to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So even though I can describe, I can tell people what is happening but I don't know that I have a good plan for what to do, like even in my own life. Mm -hmm. So what do I do? Well, it's a number of things. Um, first thing is to own assets that cannot be counterfeited or printed into existence. So physical gold, Bitcoin and self-custody, these are great options. Um, but Bitcoin is so volatile. Like how do you, do you just take a long time horizon approach on that? Well, it's volatile in terms, dollar terms, right? Um, and volatility is a function of price discovery. So if Bitcoin is a sub $1 trillion asset competing to be a $100 trillion asset, you would expect it to be volatile in dollar terms. So yes, you would but take- But that's cold comfort when I need to buy diapers for my child. This is not, I'm not advocating for Bitcoin as your checking account. I'm advocating for Bitcoin as a long-term savings account. So Define long-term. To protect yourself from the aggression of private property that's occurring through the counterfeiting of currency, something like physical gold or Bitcoin is useful. For Bitcoin specifically, it's performed really well over four-year time horizons. So that's not necessarily long-term. I wouldn't sit here and tell you that Bitcoin will be at a higher dollar price in four years. Mm. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. No one can make that claim. But what you do know is that you have a money with effectively, uh, that's effectively perfected the properties of money, which we talked about last time, specifically that we know it cannot be increased in supply, whereas every other primary money in the world, the US dollar uh, leading the charge here, is being rapidly expanded in supply. Mm. So when you price one in terms of the other, you end up with a higher Bitcoin price as an insurance policy against debasement of the dollar. So. One answer is that, own assets that cannot be counterfeited, um, commodities, businesses. Um, there's obviously a lot of risk here that you have to navigate. If it's a, if it's a public equity, they might actually be printing it. Um, some companies issue more shares than they actually have outstanding. You could check out the, I think it was Chiquita Banana they, scandal. What? Yeah, it's called rehypothecation. So there's a lot of games played on Wall Street where they will basically represent and sell more shares than there actually are in existence. Isn't that illegal? Of course it's, well, 
it's illegal if you're not inside the monopoly, if you're not a prime broker, Okay, I think is the, the in, in, industry that's allowed to do that. But um, so that's one area to be careful of. It's good to own businesses, good to own things, uh, productive factors in the economy. But if they're public equities, I do think you have to be a bit weary about things. Hmm. Uh, another thing is assets that are difficult to seize or confiscate. So this, again, back to gold in your backyard or Bitcoin in self-custody. Mm. I think what we are essentially seeing in the world is that centralized governments are bankrupt. And all government revenues are derived through taxation, inflation, which are both forms of theft and other forms of, of confiscation. So I would expect those activities to increase as monetary debasement ramps up. Um, and it could even be accelerated now that people have an option to exit fiat currencies. They can go into a savings technology like Bitcoin. This actually puts additional inflationary pressure on fiat currencies over time because people now have an incentive to sell the thing you're using to steal from me with and hold the thing that you cannot steal from me or use to steal from me, which is a good way to describe Bitcoin. So assets that can't be printed, assets that cannot be seized. Um, and then the last one, I guess I would say knowledge. You know, it's very important to kind of study the ebbs and flows of financial history um, and equip yourself with a worldview for the world we're going into. We've seen currencies fail many times before. Mm. You could study the, the, the Weimar Republic in 1920s Germany, what happened there. Um, inflation has really corrosive consequences on people's psychology, their morality, their behavior. Um, and yeah, I think that's a good start for protecting yourself and the world that we're going into. So what are you doing with your assets right now? So if just, uh, I'll go first. So I have a ton in savings, just liquid, uh, basically going in and out of really short-term bonds. Mm -hmm. So no yield, but all stuff where, um, barring the collapse of the U.S. government, mm -hmm. which I won't say is is a 0% chance risk, but certainly very low, especially mm -hmm. because they control the money printer. That's right. Um, very low risk. So money coming in and out. Uh, and then I have uh, Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, I have some in the stock market, real estate. That's sort of my portfolio. Mm. All because I don't consider myself a talented investor in any way, shape, or form. Um, what does yours look like? So dollars and treasuries are good short-term liquid instruments. I think you're smart there. Um, I consider Bitcoin to be the best long-term liquid instrument. And that's actually all of my portfolio, dollars and Bitcoin. I don't actually do the treasury game. I hold a smaller balance of dollars relative to everything else, and I hold a lot of Bitcoin. Mm. Now, this is coming from someone who's studied this asset and this space and the history of money exclusively for six years now. So what I'm advocating for other people to do is to go out and do similar due diligence for themselves, their skill set. Uh, and create this worldview and then make a portfolio construction that reflects that. I can't sit here and prescribe you any specific portfolio construction because it's unique to each individual. And if I were to do that, you would not have the level of conviction or buy-in into that portfolio. So you would inevitably be shaken out when the market starts to move, emotions would set in, and you would be shaken out of your positions. 
So that's why I don't believe in specific prescriptive portfolio constructions. But because that, conviction is one of the most important parts. Absolutely. You have to believe in what you own. Mm. You have to have buy-in, right? It's not just that you bought it physically, but you need to have intellectual buy-in. You need to understand what you own. Otherwise, when the price moves, it's just like being at the poker table. If someone pushes in a big hand and you don't know exactly what you have and you don't have a read on your opponent, then you're going to get shaken out, right? Mm. You're going to fold or you're going to call and make a bad call. You're going to lose. It's the same thing when you own assets. You need to understand what you own, understand yourself, understand the asset, and have a conviction in what it is. Otherwise, it's just not going to work, in my opinion. That's really interesting. And one of the things is I certainly spend time researching you as I just this is my first time really paying attention to a monetary cycle where there was certainly in the crypto world, there was so much euphoria until about a year ish ago. And then it really started to falter and go crazy. And when people were euphoric, it was like, man, I was looking sideways as people were taking out loans and like getting Mm -hmm. into assets. And I'm so paranoid. I was like, there's no way I do not trust myself enough. And then same thing with when people started to sell, it was like panic selling. Mm -hmm. And the approach that I try to take is, okay, I'm not, I, I personally view myself as not being smart enough to beat the market, to try to do things on timing. So I'm just like, what am I prepared to do long-term or what can't I lose on? Mm -hmm. So when I was talking to my, the person who handles the actual buying of bonds and stuff like that. I mean, I, I ask like 36 times, like what happens if, right? The price goes down. Mm -hmm. Do I still get my principal back? I may not get the interest or whatever, but I want to make sure that I'm in something that I can protect my principal. Mm -hmm. So just looking at all that. And then on the crypto, having a thesis and saying, okay, as long as I believe this to be true, I'm not going to sell. If I stop believing that to be true, then I might, you Mm -hmm. know, look at it differently. But watching the human behavior of seeing people act like they're gamblers effectively. Mm. And I remember when one of the first like big liquidation moments happened and there were, you know, memes of like people in front of their computer, like outside a nightclub, there was one guys outside a nightclub. He's squatted down in front of his computer on the sidewalk. And he's just like holding his head. Cause obviously he had been liquidated mm-hmm. because I don't know if we want to go into explaining it, but like you, you're using leverage to yeah. buy it. And it hits that point where your collateral is now the sell. Exactly. Yeah. So boom, you go from having something to having nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely devastating. And I was just like, oof, this is, this isn't just, I have mistaken money for a property of physics. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that it's a property of psychology or a useful fiction, as you refer to it, mm-hmm. you really start to think differently about it. Well, there's an element of the physics as well. Um, But I I want to say something here. So leverage in crypto is not a good mixture, in my opinion. I think most people that play with leverage, most people that play with assets beyond Bitcoin, which we endearingly call shitcoins in Bitcoin circle, you almost always get burned. Um, I have some some friends that have run the numbers on this as well, of the 30,000 shitcoins that exist, 
two and a half had outperformed Bitcoin over a four-year cycle. Mm. Most of them go to zero, go away, or the vast majority of them underperform Bitcoin. So no leverage, uh, preferably no shit coins. So you might want to sell your ETH. Uh, <laughs> do as you please. But me personally, I just think that's another project that's accumulated a lot of technical debt. It keeps moving the goalpost. I think it will collapse at some point. Um, and yeah, those instances of people crying and some people committing suicide, I don't know how true these stories are, but it can be ruinous to your life, right? If you consider how important money is to your day-to-day existence, to lose all of it in an instant mm. can be extraordinarily painful. And I've, you know, I've traded options in, in this asset class for a long time. I ran a hedge fund in the space. I've felt the pain of losing money rapidly. It's not fun. Mm. I would not recommend it. I would also say that 99% of the hedge funds out there cannot outperform buy and hold Bitcoin. Mm. Just buy and hold Bitcoin. The easiest, least intensive, least energy output strategy there is, the smartest investors in the world struggle to outperform that. So unless you think you are someone on the, the spectrum of Rain Man intelligence or some type of super prodigious trader, I would not recommend leverage or shit coins or trying to trade when buy and hold Bitcoin is performed so well. All right. So talk to me about the human element of all this. One of the things that when I was researching for this episode that I heard you talk about that I thought was really interesting is that for whatever reason, every three generations, we forget how volatile governments are, how volatile currencies can be. And I thought, wow, that's that echoes something that Ray Dalio talks about, which is this has happened many times before, just not in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so because I was born in the 70s, to me, it's like, oh, this is all pretty stable, like nice and easy. Why do people do all these crazy gyrations? Uh, but talk to me about the history of money, if Weimar Germany is the right thing to look at for hyperinflation and what comes of it, let's start there. What What is it that the average person living today hasn't seen that they need to be very aware of? Yeah, so to start that, I wanna talk about how theory shapes how we see, actually. And to do that, I wanna talk about Copernicus. So for a long time, we lived on this planet and we saw the sun rising and falling, right? And we just assumed that we were the center and that the sun was going around us, mm. right? Um, there was a bit of, it's called geocentrism. I think it's kind of an ancient form of egocentrism in a way or, or anthro anthropocentrism where we think we are the center of the universe in most cases. And then along comes a guy named Copernicus, ran the numbers and said, actually, the math says it's more likely that we are going around the sun. And so... This shift in theory did nothing to change the prior empirical observations of the sun rising and falling, but it completely inverted our interpretation of that empirical data. Mm. All of a sudden we realized, wow, we've been defrauded by this optical illusion. We thought we were the center, the sun was going around us. Well, it turns out we are going around the sun. So I say this to explain the way in which theory Right? We had a new theory, heliocentrism, that actually changes the way we interpret empirical data. We often have this inverted in our mind. We think we see data and infer theory, but it's the opposite. You have to, the theory is the frame that you're putting on reality that determines how you see it. And so 
Copernicus also came up with the quantity theory of money, which is pretty interesting. He said that if you double the money supply in an economy, that the price level will tend to double as well. Now, it's not that quantity theory of money is not specifically correct. There's a lot of factors that influence price, but it's directionally correct. If you counterfeit $6 trillion and you had $6 trillion to begin with, in the long run, prices will normalize at about 2x to what they were. So I think we have been, and as you just said, you thought it was this pillar of physics that prices needed to go up at 2% every year because we have been conditioned into this false theory of Keynesian economics that we think rising prices and in the long run, failing fiat regimes is the norm of human history. But the real problem we have is that we are operating under a false economic theory. Printing money does not solve problems. Increasing nominal prices does not make you richer. So I think that hopefully the emergence of Bitcoin that's leading to the resurgence of discussions like this, uh, a heightened interest in libertarian philosophy and Austrian economics, it's actually throwing light on the, this corruption of money that's hidden in plain sight, right? How crazy is it to think that the most desired asset in the world, the U.S. dollar, is also the largest pyramid scheme we have ever had in human history? How, how do you think that affects us psychologically? When did it become morally? a pyramid scheme? Well, we started in 1913 with the Federal Reserve. Um, fractional reserve banking is effectively a pyramid scheme, right? You're, you have more liabilities outstanding than you do assets in reserve. So you're running a fraud. So long as so for every dollar that you or every 10, no, every dollar that you have in the bank, you can loan out nine or something. You have a contract with your depositor, right? They have given you a dollar that's redeemable for gold and you've given them a dollar in exchange, a liability. Now, if I over issue those liabilities, but I don't increase the amount of gold I have in reserve, this is why they call it a fractional reserve as opposed to a full reserve. Yep. All of a sudden, I'm now engaged in a fraud. You only I'm, have to I'm have misrepresenting so much of what you've promised people yes. actually in the bank, yes. and you're good. And Is it like 10%? Is there a number? Well, the number changes based on policy, but in reality, anything less than 100% is a fraud. Right. You, ha you have issued more checks than your ass can cash, so to speak. So if at any time the wrong amount of people, right, if you're a 50% reserve bank, 51% of the people come to redeem their money, you're bankrupt. Right. So that, and the, you know, we've seen the bank run in movies like A Beautiful Life. People were, again, were very conditioned to think it's the norm. How, how does a run on the bank even exist? If it's a full reserve honest bank, it couldn't exist. So I would say the moment we entered fractional reserve banking, it became a pyramid scheme. Was that day one? Um, the dollar was redeemable for gold was redeemable it's, for gold. Well, there was a brief moment where it stopped, then we got back on the gold standard. In 1971, we break forever. Exactly. But when... So we suspend convertibility in times of war or crisis. So that's when the banks... So that we can just pump money in. And so the fractional reserve can continue to exist. It doesn't want people coming to the bank to redeem dollars for gold because that would show the insolvency, right? When, mm. when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked, as Warren Buffett said. So get... So we had on and off convertibility um, throughout the ex existence of the dollar in times of war and crisis. We outlawed private gold ownership in 1933, Executive Order 6102. And then the big one where we move into this 
giant global pyramid scheme is 1971, where we break the tie to gold entirely. So now governments have the ability to issue dollars, the US government can issue dollars ad infinitum with no convertibility constraint. There's no check on this, uh, on this issuance of dollars. And I wanna say something here too. Again, inflation is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. The only thing you can do with printing money is violate the property of others. You cannot issue any equitable benefit to an economic system whatsoever. It's not possible. So it's, I can't <laughs> emphasize this point enough that it is everywhere and always only theft. That is the only thing printing money can do. So any economy that has a central bank, which is every economy, has an institution, an anti-capitalistic institution of theft integrated into its core. And that is the source of so much of the psychological, financial, and moral malaise I think we see in the world. Okay, so I, I'm not saying this to play devil's advocate. I actually think this either is something that you have an answer for that I'm just unaware of, or I'm about to change your life. I have no idea which. <laughs> so one of the things, everyone's paranoid about deflation. And I'm just dumb enough that I was like, why would deflation ever be a problem? That means that my money gets more valuable over time. It has more buying power. I'm like, that's amazing. So, but people get really freaked out about that. And you hear economists talk about, I'm actually more worried about deflation than I am inflation. So I was like, well, why would that be true? I think it was you that I heard explain that in a deflationary environment, now people start hoarding their money. because so they're like, whoa, 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 why would I spend this today? If I wait a week or a month or a year, I can actually buy more. This is amazing. And so they stop spending. And so then I was like, well, hold on. Then inflation is a nudge to get things moving. And when I think about all the amazing things that we've built and created, it requires people to create and to buy. And if you have creation but no buying, then creation will stop. Mm -hmm. And if you have a deflating currency, people just, the natural inclination is to not spend. I mean, you'll buy what you have to buy to stay alive. But like, even when I think about my Bitcoin, I'm like, well, I'd rather hold it. Mm -hmm. So isn't it possible that it isn't a sinister desire to inflate the money supply into infinity that we create the central bank, but rather... I'm being generous, but rather a desire to know that there's going to be some times where I have to nudge this a little bit to keep the economy moving and the economy moving, meaning people want to buy something because they know, oh, my money, they have, again, I'm stealing from you here. They have a, a, a non-intellectual understanding. So it's a visceral feeling of like, mm, I should spend some of this sure. money and get something because holding it into the future isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm buying things. That cycle gets us all the innovation that we see now. Yeah, that is the standard Keynesian argument. All <laughs> excited. Um, it turns out, though, that human beings want to consume no matter what. We have to eat. We have to have shelter. We have to have transportation, clothing, all yeah, of these things. I don't need a new iPhone. Well, the argument has been that a little bit of inflation is necessary to stoke an economy. Otherwise, people will not consume and there will be no economy. Yep. But I don't think that water, that argument holds water at the outset. Because how are you going to eat? How are do you? the bare minimum, there's no doubt. But okay. when you, like, if you just imagine a world where the currency holds steady or deflates, 
Don't you think that'd be a pretty different world? Maybe better. I think it's a great, different. much better world. Yes. So today our debt, global debt to GDP is like 350%. So that's saying we have 350% in liabilities relative to about um, a 100. So it's a $100 trillion in global GDP, roughly $350, $450 trillion in global debt. That is a consequence of currency being debased because in a, an instance where units of currency are losing purchasing power over time, I'm incentivized to borrow the stronger dollars today and pay back the weaker dollars over time, right? So there's this incentive for accumulation of debt that's one bad consequence of a fiat economy. Why is that um, bad? The accumulation of debt. Mm. Debt shrinks people's time horizon. So what you're doing is you're disincentivizing saving. That accumulation of options against the uncertainty of the future that we discussed, you're disincentivizing that. I now, instead of delaying gratification today and saving for the future, I now want to sell the future and buy today. That's effectively what you're doing when you take on debt. It's an inversion of the principle of delayed gratification. Um, and it increases economic volatility significantly because what did you just describe? The guy getting liquidated in front of the club. Once prices hit certain liquidation points or margin calls, assets are forcibly sold. So this increases market volatility, increases the misallocation of capital. Do you think so, Michael Saylor's crazy? No, you can use debt intelligently. Because he's going ham, dude. You like, can use I'm debt intelligently. holding my breath. So if you can use debt intelligently, is your argument that just most people won't well, use it intelligently? Well, here's what Michael Saylor is doing, though. He is taking on debt where he has favorable terms, favorable um, repayment frequency, duration, etc. So he's borrowing the weak money, selling it to buy the strong money, which is Bitcoin, and then he's paying back weaker dollars over time, subject to... Uh, parameters that are favorable for him and his business, right? His strong balance sheet, all of these things. That's the smart use of debt. But notice what he's doing. This is Gresham's law, by the way. Gresham's law said that bad money tends to drive good money out of circulation. And what he meant by that is in an economy where, say, dollars, pesos, and Bitcoin are circulating, people are going to spend the pesos first, assuming that's weaker than the dollar in this example, the dollar's second, and they're going to hoard the Bitcoin, because the Bitcoin has a limited supply. So when bad money circulates, people that tactile knowledge of their economic reality, they tend to hoard the thing that can't be printed or is not being debased. The same is true when we used to clip coins. Emperors used to clip coins and one would have say 100% silver content. They'd do an another issuance that had maybe 90% silver, 80% silver and so on, but they all had the same face value. This is where Gresham actually developed his law. So they were legally circulating with the same face value, but people being smart, they hoarded the ones with more precious metal content and spent the ones with less. So that um, hopefully points to how things actually monetize and demonetize. Uh, this is why gold became money, right? People wanted to hoard the thing that was difficult to inflate or counterfeit and spend the weaker monies. And it turns out gold historically is the most difficult commodity to inflate or counterfeit the supply of. We can't actually counterfeit the supply of it, not economically at least. So that's why it became the premier store of value. I chose to hold the asset 
I being one economic actor across a whole history of economic actors, people zeroing in on this reality that there's only one asset that can uh, most predictably hold its supply across time, which is to say it is the best store of value asset available to them. This is the process of monetization and demonetization that we've seen play out across history. Okay, so I have a base assumption, and my base assumption is, I think, very clearly different than yours, but I'd love you to state exactly where yours is. So my base assumption is that if you are holding a currency, the value of a currency steady, or you are deflating it, that you will well, you're not holding decrease innovation. Or decreasing the value is the supply. Value is determined always by the market. The impact, going back to your pizza example, mm -hmm. though, if, if the size of the pizza stays the same, mm -hmm. but only so much of it is allocated to me, but if my slice gets bigger over time, mm -hmm. I would rather not eat it now. I'd rather wait until the slice is really big mm -hmm. and can feed me. Even though mm -hmm. it's not, I'm not increasing the size of the pizza, but my allocation of that pizza is growing larger. That would be, to use the analogy of deflation, tie it to the pizza example, that's where we'd be. Well, in that instance, though, you would be a shareholder of a central bank if the slice of your pizza is growing or one of the first recipients of Why the is that true? So money. take Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Well, the pizza is the global capital stock. Mm -hmm. And so the slices are basically, and this is an, an analogy, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The slices are the representational option people have on that stock. So you have one pizza, which is all the stuff in the world. Yep. And we slice it up into... Uh, a net worth, right? That what is the value of this global capital stock? Now, who owns which slice? Now, if we start printing money, we basically start creating new slices that are crowding out the other ones. Yep. Whoever gets those new slices first is stealing from those the holders of the the previous slices. If the government has coming to existence um, to solidify the will of the people to protect you, to protect property. But then over time, it begins to involve itself in that property. And you're in a fiat position now where um, part of how they get the control is through money. And mm -hmm. now you have the first true sound money and it has the inelastic properties that yep. make it, you know, the soundest money of all time. The question that I had for, Michael Saylor that he answers very differently than you mm -hmm. is aren't the governments going to get really upset mm -hmm. about this that their only real option would be to either mimic it in which case now I have that counterparty risk because it's a government mm -hmm. that created it versus this sort of mythical creator that poof has disappeared and other than whatever units he or she or they have is not trying to engage in the system in any way, shape or form, couldn't change it even if they wanted to. How do we avoid the government coming down with an iron fist and saying, yeah, this is this is illegal now? Yeah, I do view this a little differently than, than Sailor, who's absolutely brilliant. Um, I think his position in general is that they'll exist side by side, fiat currencies and Bitcoin. And I tend to agree in the medium term, and I think that's happening today. Bitcoin's an almost trillion dollar asset. It exists side by side with countless or hundreds of fiat currencies, let's say. However, in the long run, I think Bitcoin 
And again, we're back to that. The difficulty in understanding it is because it is so far outside our worldview, right? The idea of gold being disrupted. Gold is almost the only game that humans have ever played in a way. It's foundational to all of our institutions. It's a 5,000-year-old technology that's so old, we forgot what made it valuable. Everyone knows it's valuable. How many people can tell you the five properties of money and why gold was selected? The idea that that's being disrupted by this 13-year-old digital upstart is pretty pretty wild. Um, but I think that Bitcoin is an innovation as significant as the Gutenberg printing press, actually. And I think the implications of its emergence will be similarly disruptive to institutions in the world. Um, you know, this is late in the 15th century, I believe, when the printing press was invented. The 500 years prior to that, there had been roughly 10 million books printed. All of a sudden, this super cheap and efficient way of reproducing books is invented, the Gutenberg printing press, which was a composite of other inventions, by the way. It wasn't really a breakthrough in itself. It was one guy or guys put together four or five different other inventions and made this thing work. Similar to Bitcoin, actually. That's what Satoshi did. He pulled together things that already existed, but just put them in a, together in a radically new package mm. that we call Bitcoin. Ten years after the invention of the printing press, 10 million books were produced. So the amount of books produced in 10 years equaled the amount produced in the 500 years prior. What did this do? This led to the rapid proliferation and dissemination of literacy, numeracy. Again, psychotechnologies, right? These these modes of systemizing our cognition that actually increase our ability to cooperate absent or independent of institutions of the day, which the dominant institution of the day was the church. They owned a monopoly on knowledge effectively via the scriptoria, which is where a uh, scriptorium. I may be saying that you wrong. can make it up. I have no <laughs> fucking idea. I've never heard that word before. They in my used life. to have monks copying books by hand. Right. So to produce one book, took a lot of labor. Mm. Books were a luxury item. But all of a sudden, due to this innovation called the printing press, the cost of book production plummeted. Books become much more uh, widely dispersed. And it, the church at first didn't realize this existential threat. Once it did, it actually tried to clamp down on the printing press, uh, which created a, an interesting dynamic that it we, we actually started producing books on how to produce the printing press. So it, it saw that this is a good allegory, I think, that when uh, the institution tries to gra tries to clamp down on the disruptive technology, the subversive technology, let's say, it actually drives it to its highest and most useful form of sub subversion, actually. So the result of that was a lot more thinkers, uh, a lot higher quality of thinking, variety of thinking. And in general, it created a market for heresy. Right. This led to Martin Luther pinning that, like, why do we need you? We individuals can now have this independent relationship with the word of God because they've developed literacy and whatnot. They don't need to go through this middleman of the church. And the printing press effectively led to the dissolution of the church as the dominant institution in the world. So we had separation of church and state and all the, the benefits that that created in the aftermath. I think encryption technology, and this is deriving a lot of this from the book, The Sovereign Individual, which I've recommended highly, 
um, is similar, that it actually disrupts functions of the government that we needed the government previously for. We can now provide with code, Bitcoin being an obvious one, right? We needed the physical enforcer for property historically. Now for money, the most important property, you don't need that enforcer anymore. So I think that Bitcoin, its emergence will actually lead to the dissolution of the nation state as the dominant organizational model for human beings. Every time I hear you say that, and I may regret saying this out loud, <laughs> but every time I hear you say that, I'm like, shh, shh, shh. Like <laughs> I, I, and look, I know that that also would be its own form of social engineering to like, to, hey, don't tip off the government and like, let yeah. this happen, like give it more breathing room. Yeah. And so there would be unintended consequences there. But it's like, man, so I'm going to give you my layperson's view on Bitcoin and why I become so. And admittedly, I'm not a maximalist. So for me, this is looking more broadly yeah. at like cryptocurrency and the digitization of value, okay. which is how I see this. So my thesis is. Technology is a one-way street. Mm -hmm. We will find anything that can be turned into code will be turned into code for reasons such as yeah. that you can create absolute scarcity. You mm -hmm. can now have a blockchain that will track ownership so everybody knows exactly what's going on. There's a transparency to the ledger mm -hmm. that, um, that we don't have to be slaves to as many laws of physics. You're still going to be tied to energy production. Mm -hmm. um, but once we are spending... Once you can tap into the um, the basically your nervous system mm -hmm. and you can get me to feel like I'm flying where it is indistinguishable mm -hmm. for me actually flying, mm -hmm. then all bets are off. And I think given the human desire to pull the levels of our neurochemistry, we will just end up going down that route. So it just makes sense to me that things will be digitized, that money will be digitized, yeah. that um anything again like it's i said anything efficient. we can for sure yeah. it's more efficient it's more exciting it's more interesting mm -hmm. it's it just seems like an inevitable sort of one-way street mm -hmm. and so i'm like ooh, when i heard about this and finally went down the rabbit hole of learning what it actually is and why it works i was mm -hmm. like oh, okay i totally get this and for me the the priming mechanism was nfts because i knew that would make sense for my business mm -hmm. all of that sort of irrelevant but it took me down the path of of learning what this is and so now I'm like, whoa, 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 for the first, not the first time, we're all living through a moment right now where for the first time we as just normal individuals are front running the institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I became obsessed with just getting people to look at it because I can't see the future, nor can you, nor mm -hmm. can anybody. So I don't know what's going to work out. It could end up being a disaster. Mm -hmm. So I don't want people to just do what I say. I want them to go learn what this is because I think it's. It is incredibly important for all human beings to be able to think from first principles, meaning you know how things work. Mm -hmm. Don't just think about things. Think right. about the nature of things. That's right. And when you understand the nature of things, you can solve novel problems, a yes. problem nobody's seen before. Mm -hmm. Nobody can give you a book. There is mm -hmm. no way um, for me to sort of pre-masticate the idea for you. Mm -hmm. But now you have the information, like with literacy, where you can go on this discovery mechanism and... If you should lead to the same conclusion that I have come to, mm -hmm. which is that, oh, my God, this moment of panic I had where. So understand, dude, that this to me is funny. And I really believe that the the purpose and meaning that I'm finding in life is I've had to learn everything the hard way. I'm mm -hmm. not particularly bright. 
and I can't think fast, but I can think really fucking deeply mm. about something. And so because I have to learn things the hard way with sort of normal hardware, right? Mm. I don't have particularly, I don't have a genius like that, but then I can sort of explain after I've really spent some time with it, I can explain it is I had this moment of panic where as this guy who managed to create tremendous wealth in his life by spending two decades getting good at business, right? Mm -hmm. Took me for fucking ever. I did not have natural (laughs) instincts in entrepreneurship, but I figured it out. And so then have created wealth in my life. But now I'm still ignorant to investing. So I've created like fucking crazy money, money where people be like, what? And, but I don't know how to invest it. And so I get involved in the world of investing and I'm telling my money manager, just don't fucking take risks. All right. Like (laughs) keep this shit as just, Keep me at the amount of money that I have, the buying power. That's all I'm looking for. Mm. I'm not trying to Warren Buffett this shit. I don't need to Mm. die as the richest person on earth. None of that matters to me. But they keep like haranguing me. Tom, you can't just do that. Like you, and I'm like, why? Mm. And no one could explain it to me. And the confused mind says no. So they would try to explain mechanisms, calls, puts, options mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, every seven years I could double my money, meh, all that. And I'm like, I don't give a shit about that. I just I've already made the money. I just want to protect my money now. Right. And then I discover NFTs and then I discover fucking Michael Saylor and <laughs> he goes into inflation and like what it means and how it breaks down your buying power. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God, I have to then keep making money. And I don't want to have to keep making money. That's right. So then I'm like, God damn it. And so I'm looking at inflation and I'm saying, here's one thing I find really fucking distressing. No one can agree on what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, then it's not super obvious. You've got Michael Saylor who's like, Tom, you're going to be broke in 62 days. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, <laughs> you know, uh, other people that are like, come on. Like it's, you know, we're, we're only around 2%. Like this is all madness. And then you've got people that are in between. And then I find you. And you actually explain what inflation is. And now I'm at first principles. Now I understand it. Now I know what's happening. Now I'm really freaked out. So now my moral obligation goes to 100. But I'm like, Breedlove, will you shut the fuck up? You're going to like get the government like they're going to freak the fuck out. And they're going to clamp down on this shit. And now I'm legitimately like, whoa, what do we do? Because my hope is. That you're right about the thing and you're wrong about either the speed or the amplitude. Meaning, you're probably right that on a long enough timeline, Uh government takes on a new shape, but it happens over five or six generations. It doesn't happen in 20 years, which that would be literally bloody and terrifying. But if it happens over a hundred years, then I can see it where it just changes the dynamic between us as sovereign individuals and the government, because quite frankly, I don't think most people want sovereignty, not, not a hundred percent sovereignty. Yeah. And I'll explain it through Bitcoin. I know I'm supposed to put it on my cold storage device and put my cold storage device somewhere very safe. Mm-hmm but I kind of prefer it on an exchange (laughs) because I want them to deal with like the security and all of that because I'm sure as hell not storing it in my house Mm -hmm. because I don't want to incentivize somebody to break in. So now I've got a, I've got counterparty risk of like, I'm storing it at a bank. Like where am I putting this fucking thing? So I realized, Whoa, like I'm a, I trust myself a lot, Mm -hmm. relatively bright, 
very hardworking, like, hey, if anybody can figure it out, I can figure it out. And I still want somebody else to deal with it. Yeah, it's. And that's analogous to wanting a government to be the one yes, to come in and protect yes, my home. Yes, I don't yes, need, yes. I w- don't want to need a gun. You yes. know what I mean? Shit like that. I want a right. government to deal with some of these things. Yeah. And again, uh, as a means of either a cognitive expedient or outsourcing security, like that's natural. We want that. And I should make the important point. It's not black or white. It's not like banks or Bitcoin, you actually have Bitcoin banks. They already exist. Um, you know, Nidig and all these other guys, they're just taking custody of Bitcoin now, giving you traditional banking services, but on a Bitcoin standard. Hmm. Uh, the other aspect is it's not, you don't have one pot of Bitcoin. You know, you can put a little with this bank, that bank, this bank, you can spread out your counterparty risk, keep some in self-custody. Uh, I mentioned multi-signature earlier. That might be a little bit beyond the scope of this conversation, but you can actually get redundancy plus self-sovereignty. So you could trust yourself, but not make your house a target by using a multi-signature setup, which I think is the most uh, useful schema for custodying your Bitcoin. Because you get, again, redundancy. You don't have single point of failure, but you also don't have counterparty risk. Or you have, or you and have- that's going out to like my friends or my family and saying, hey, you five or six people. You also have to sign for this to be moved. And one of you hopefully goes, did Tom really want this? <laughs> right? That's what multi-sig is? Correct. Yeah. You're you're selecting your circle of trust, basically, uh, and structuring it in a way that a majority would not collude against you. Right? Yeah. You and that they don't probably even know who each other are. Exactly. And there's a whole lot of game theoretic considerations to that, but it can be done is the point. Um, and Bitcoin enables this. You can't do that with any other, any other asset. So that's radically new. Um and to your point about breed love, shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're not the only one to say that, actually. Um, people have a bit of reticence about maybe discussing the geopolitical implications of Bitcoin. But the way that I look at it is that these conversations are going to be had. It's just a matter of are they being had behind closed doors, mm. you know, favoring those in the room or are, are these conversations we're going to have out in the open um, such that it does not produce such an asymmetric outcome. So maybe I'm wrong. You know, I could be persuaded one way or the other. And I've had a, a lot of smart people give me really good criticism about it. But it seems to me that in the digital age, you know, in the ethos of openness and transparency that we discuss what we've done here, what mm. world have we created for ourselves? How does this radical new asset or form of property change the game and what are the geopolitical implications what does this do in the the broader span of human history to the institutions we've come to depend on um i think it's a fruitful conversation to to be had out in the sunlight um i do think though that it could be you know we're very maybe indoctrinated to some extent that transitions have to be bloody. They have to be violent and, you know, what have you. But again, a lot of this is rooted in the viability of property. Again, um, the book, The Sovereign Individual, goes into the logic of violence and how this has changed human behavior and human institutions over time. Uh, One simple example here would be the knight on horseback used to be the dominant force in the land because... This guy could afford a war horse, afford a suit of armor and a lance. Uh, The stirrup actually was very, uh, very pivotal innovation because before the stirrup, 
The armored knight was too heavy to get on horseback, so he didn't have mobility to be the force on the land. So the stirrup, the seemingly simple invention, changed the logic of violence that allowed the knight to that become dominant. That shit is so fascinating. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. And how, like, what a big knock-on effect they have. Yes. Utterly fascinating. So then that was this, you know, had implications on the feudal age and the knight, you know, uh, the, the moral code of chivalry. All these things emerged from this kind of simple innovation that made the knight the dominant force. But then what happened? We invented gunpowder. So the, you know, one knight that could take on 50 peasants in armed combat, all of a sudden, one peasant at 200 yards can take out a knight. Mm. So it all changes again, right? Chivalry collapses, all these things. So when we change the logic of violence, which means, you know, the economic returns of violence or coercion or the cost of defense, the way we organize ourselves changes, and so you could think of Bitcoin as this new technology that so radically increases the cost to benefit ratio of violence. And that if someone's properly custody of it, again, in a multi-signature format or whatever, there's not any carrot at the end of robbing them. You're not going to get anything, right? You can go and in Bitcoin circles, they call this the $5 wrench attack because you buy the wrench for $5 and you beat the guy over the head with a wrench until he gives up his Bitcoin. But if he's custodied it properly, there's no incentive even to conduct a $5 wrench attack. So in this gigantic geopolitical upheaval that I anticipate occurring due to the monetization of Bitcoin, I think it could be very uncertain at first. You know, governments are going to use their power in certain ways that could be unfavorable, let's say. But over time... As Bitcoin continues to monetize and more and more people are holding their wealth in this inviolable property, that would, I would tend to believe that the incentives towards peaceful cooperation would begin to outweigh the incentives to coercion. So although it could be a bit rocky in the beginning, I think the long-term outcome is way more fruitful for, for humans. You know, we're, and something you said earlier too, that maybe people don't want sovereignty, Full sovereignty. Full sovereignty. I think people, I think incentives are the fertile soil from which our humanity springs, actually. All right. So we think is maybe a bit egotistical that we think that however we are, this is the way humans are. And it's the way they've always been. But again, that's totally not true. Right. Pre-printing press, most of us were illiterate. We didn't have our cognitive software was completely unrecognizable to what we are today. Mm. No one could sit here and have a conversation like this, much less with all these amazing tools we've created in the marketplace since then. So I think that by changing the fundamental soil, which are the incentives, again, like the logic of violence and all these other things, that we actually change our character traits and behaviors. Um, I've said that, and to try and draw commonality here, I said organizations and institutions are all property strategies. You know, I think that even DNA itself is kind of a survival strategy or property strategy over time. Right. We're all all organisms geared towards reproduction. Reproduction necessitates territory. We need to take territory. Humans express territory in property. Right. That's how we share and and build, uh, declare property and create more wealth, actually, by, by trading through property rights. So I think that we, our strategies ultimately conform to the invariance on the game board, if you will, 
and Saylor talks about one of these is gravity, right? Like gravity is the one invariant that all of these strategies, whether you're a human being, whether you're a building, whether you're a government, like you're, you're adapting your strategy to gravity. That's an invariant, right? You can't, if you change gravity, it would destroy all the humans and buildings and all the things. You can kind of consider Bitcoin, maybe I'm out on a limb here, but I think 21 million, this fixed supply asset, as the emergence of a new, seemingly perfected invariant in the market for money. So it forces all of us to change our strategies to adopt this invariant in the, in the, the space. So this is at the individual level, the institutional level, and at the nation state level. Um, sounds a bit radical, but I think that if you come to see you know, DNA as a survival strategy propagating through blood, flesh, and bone, and that all the other creations we make are just, um, you know, in biology, they call this the extended phenotype. We have the genotype, which is the genetic code, the strategy itself. We implement it in the phenotype, the body, the teeth, the eyes. We have the extended phenotype, which are our tools and technologies, or even our institutions, that it's all a strategy. And that those strategies will adopt themselves to the invariants that we create for ourselves. I think Bitcoin is just the perfect invariant money. Strong men make easy times. Easy times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. Hard times make strong men. And you get in this loop. Mm -hmm. It's catchy and it's easy to remember, but it doesn't have the fidelity of where you're going. This question that I'm going to ask is going to seem perhaps unrelated, but it's everything to me. Are rich people evil? Because that's the narrative, that that's the worldview that people are taking. And I think now using your level of fidelity, what I see that breaks, the reason it becomes hard times is they break the, the individual property rights. Yes. And then society begins to break down because there's something fundamental to my need to be able to control my destiny. And when I can't do that, darkness ensues because I will try to do that. And to get me to fall in line, you will have to violently oppress me. Yes. And when you violently oppress me to get me to what I actually think they have something beautiful in mind that they want to do, they really want to help people. Mm -hmm. But to get everyone to stop being an individual takes an obscene amount of punishment. So are that was a great evil? lead in. And that was not the question I was expecting whatsoever. Um, I'd like to first, my first answer would be no, but I want to be more specific. So Solzhenitsyn, oh, yeah. the line between good and evil cuts down the heart of every man. It is my assertion. I'm sure there's a lot of factors that move that line in people. But when I look at history, I see material incentives as being the strongest force moving that line around. When people are compensated to do something, they're much more likely to do that something regardless of, regardless of its moral qualities, let's say. So, and again, is why I always talk about property. It's like the less viable we can make property, you can remove that option entirely. I always talk about making versus taking, right? Making being the entrepreneurial path. Trade, hard work, delayed gratification, that's one way to acquire wealth. The other way, the political way of just taking whatever the makers made, right? You just steal it from them. The degree to which we can make taking more expensive or less possible, which is saying the same thing, is the degree to which we shift 
that moral composition or ethical or uh, pragmatic composition of society, what people are actually doing. Everyone's trying to get more wealthy all the time. It's natural, right? You want to live in a bigger place. You want to eat nicer food. You want to have more freedom. This is very natural. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The means by which you acquire that is something to be ashamed of, though. If you're taking it from someone, you should be ashamed because you did not create that value. You stole it from someone. The more we can make this an impossibility, the more we can have people engage in the making path. And this is where we talk about Bitcoin being so important because Bitcoin is, in my opinion, the most expensive form of property to violate in human history. Borderline, borderline's on impossible. If you custody it properly and you maintain all your protocols, there's not really a feasible way to take it. That makes tyranny less profitable, let's say. So when I see good and evil, the ebbs and flows of good and evil in the world, it is occurring in everyone's heart. And if you don't admit that, then you're not being honest with yourself, mm -hmm. right? We all have the capability to be evil or do dark things. We've probably all done some dark things. Maybe there's some exceptions out there. I know I'm not one of them. We cannot change human nature, so far as I know. But we can change the incentive structures we inhabit. And we can make property more expensive to violate. And by doing so, we can shift the moral composition of society. So no, rich people are not evil. And like you said earlier, um, to elaborate on rich, like, okay, I guess it's sort of rooted in that axiom that man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction. That's almost like saying you'd you just... Given the options between rich and poverty, which one do you choose, all else being equal? I hope everyone's saying rich. I mean, you don't even have to use it. You could give it all away, right? You could be rich and then give it all away and still be back in poverty. But if you just chose poverty, you'd just be in poverty. So that uh, selection process that's occurring in everyone's heart, I think the, the moving the Solzhenitsyn heart line the most effective way we can do that is to make property expensive to violate. That is the most important material incentive uh, that we can move in the world. And on this, this notion of religious impulse and how we're attaching this to our, our stories, you are the unifying principle of your organization. Just like God is the unifying principle in the church. We do impute a religious value to these hierarchies that we're in. Uh, I think because all action is premised on faith. We talked about this in the last episode you never know what's going to happen, right? You can just choose an end that you want to obtain and then choose means and then try to act towards it. But you're constantly messing up errors, getting off course and trying to get back on path, right? So every action is an act of faith in a way, right? You just have the faith that the thing that you're trying to make happen will happen. And if it doesn't, you'll error correct. So there is this, there's this religious quality to all human hierarchies doesn't make you a priest or anything, but people in your organization are going to look up to you. They're going to look, hey, I'm giving you my best working years or whatever the guy said to you. That's a real thing, right? He's on an act of faith betting that your company and your mission and your ability to lead and unify that organization will be an adequate exchange, a consensual exchange of his working years for whatever you're going to do for him. Mm. Like that's very, there's something to that. And Ultimately, in this division, the divisiveness between the rich and poor and people getting upset and trying to create class conflict, I think it obscures the grandest truth on this little pale blue dot is that we're one big family, right? We're all here. We've all got the same limited resources to deal with. The best thing we can do 
is intelligently coordinate our action such that people are doing what they're best at, specializing in what they're best at. Everyone's doing that. And then we trade with one another so that we enjoy the best quality of everything that anyone can do in the world, right? And we don't have to be good at it. So you can be really good at running a media company and you can still go to this restaurant down there and eat the best sushi in the world because he specialized at sushi and he can go home and enjoy your YouTube channel because mm -hmm. you specialize at this. That's the ideal world, in my opinion. People living peaceably, specializing, innovating, not stealing from each other. And, you know, the religious piece, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm a guy that grew up in Tennessee. I consider myself an aspiring disciple of Christ. I don't know if that means I'm religious or not, but it gives me a lot of meaning in my life and gives me something to look, someone to look up to, someone to try and imitate, someone to try and, and make, to lead you to be a stronger, better person, right? It's like a, the highest consciousness you could imagine, whether it really happened or not, it's in that story. And I can relate to that story. I can read that story every night. I can enact it in my life. I can carry it into my organization to be a better leader, better man, better person. So I think that's where the world needs to go. Why are people so angry right now? I, and admittedly a subset, why is a subset of people so upset? I, want, I think that there really is something going on but I can't quite tell what it is. So one of the things you hear is that the boomers have trapped so much wealth that they're staying in positions too long, organizations are becoming corrupted. But if wealth, like my parents are boomers, and don't feel trapped by them at all. Um, the system has worked for me, so I'm so confused by people's take on it. Am I delusional? So the, the story that I believe is accurate, but is certainly the story that I tell myself, is I am an average person who has worked my ass off to turn potential into skill set. Mm. I have deployed that skill set very strategically in order to create value for people. And they wanted the things that I've created more than they wanted their money. That allowed me to build equity. I then sold that company and was able to, after many years of living like I was broke, finally able to capture the value that I built into the company. Mm -hmm. um, but when I hear the way people talk about people that have generated wealth, it, it's they want people to pay tax on um, unrealized gains, no matter how much uh, the wealthy pay in tax, like Elon Musk has now paid mm -hmm. uh, in a single year more tax than basically mm -hmm. anybody in human history. Not basically, I think that's actually a true statement. Uh, but all the responses are, but it's not enough. And, mm -hmm. and so I can't relate to that mental frame of reference. But being generous and assuming that there really is something going, that if I were a kid now, that I would have the same frame of reference that they have. Why? What's happening? Yeah. Um, people are mad because they're victims of the largest heist in human history. Like, especially if you're young right now and you're living paycheck to paycheck, especially over the past couple of years, the prices are soaring, wages are flat, right? This is the same story since 1971. You know, look at the charts. I always recommend the website, WTFHappened1971.com. WTFHappenedIn1971.com. Let me make sure I'm saying that right. 
All these charts shows in 1971, there's a divergence from productivity and wages. The working class, the lower middle and increasingly middle and lower classes are being squeezed in this false economic paradigm that we have with Keynesian economics. Because we broke the peg to gold. Well, that enabled the more rapid violation of private property rights through monetary inflation. And all of those, that corrosion of society, the moral decomposition I described, I think it all follows from that. And people today don't understand what's happening, right? Again, you don't need to cognitively understand. It helps if you cognitively understand, but you just feel that you're getting scammed and squeezed all the time, right? No matter what you do, nothing is working. Even if there's no malintent behind it, when you repeatedly try an action and reality does not respond the way you want it to, you are in the unknown, right? You're in unexplored territory and you're scrambling to get back to something that makes sense where I can do an action and get some semblance of an expected response. Youth are not getting that today, right? They're going to work. They're saving their money. Prices keep going up too fast. They're still getting squeezed. They're moving back in with their parents, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're in the state early stages of currency failure. And people that are on the wrong side of the economic hierarchy in those situations are feeling the pain. They can't necessarily properly attribute the cause. They don't know. They don't understand the nature of property and money and all these things we're talking about. So what do they do? They're, they reduce to this barbarism of class consciousness, right? Rich people are evil. These people are evil. Uh, a lot of it's pointed at the government. I wish more of it was pointed at the government because that is the sole legal violator of the do not steal dictum that I shared earlier. This is the only legal enterprise we have that generates all of its revenues through theft. Uh, that's a big problem. And that is dangerous because we've done that before, right? We did this with Marxism, that there was a the problem was diagnosed that some people were getting rich and some people were getting poor, right? There was a, there was a corruption or malignancy in the economic hierarchy, but the Marxist prescription was to abolish private property. The exact wrong thing you want to do for all the reasons we've described today, right? You have no prices, all of the wealth then rolls up into very few hands, the state, they own everything, uh, wealth creation collapses, mass suffering, mass starvation, genocide, all of these things come from that root, in my opinion. I think what we need to abolish is taxation and inflation and the central bank. That would maximize the integrity of individual private property rights, which would remo remove this do not steal, at least the institutionalized element of do not steal, remove it from the world and enable people to deal with each other on consensual terms, right? Just like you wouldn't, the guy that's giving you his best working years, you wouldn't bang him over the head to keep him here, right? Like coercion in that relationship's never going to work long run. Even if you get the guy to stay here and beat him over the head with a wrench and say, you're gonna work for me no matter what, he's not gonna work so well for you. He's not gonna work as hard for you. He's not gonna work as smart for you. He's gonna backstab you every chance he gets. So if non-consensual exchange doesn't work in that very simple bilateral transaction, why do we think it works when we scale it up to the multiplicity of the whole global economy? And yet we have that integrated into our money today. Money that's supposed to be this instrument of trust and trade and integrity and optionality, right? There's a lot of uncertainty in the world, but I know if I save my dollars like grandma told me, I can protect myself against that entropy. 
We're destroying that. We've got no firm footing left in the world. Of course people are going crazy. And I've, I've written about this, that I think... I had a guy on the show, Matthias Desmond, he wrote The Psychology of Totalitarianism on the phenomena of mass psychosis. And he lays out a lot of very intelligent reasons how, why we've had mass psychoses in the past and why we, he thinks we're going through one again. Um, but I shared with him, I think the violation of property is one of these things. Because if you sit down, you know, we talked about this last time too, to play a game, poker for instance, I always like poker because I like to play poker, and you start changing the rules randomly every few hands, or changing the hand rankings, whatever, don't you think every play at the table is going to go absolutely fucking crazy? Like you can't make sense to build a strategy. There's no play left. It's just noise and madness. That's what we're doing in the world. We don't know how many dollars are in our existence. We don't know how many will be in existence. We don't know who decides. We don't know who profits from their production. It's just a giant, opaque pyramid scheme that we all use as our primary means of exchange. Mm. And that, I think, is... I don't want to say it's the only problem in the world. We have a lot of problems. But it seems like the biggest one that I can hope to aim at. And it's really interesting that, at least as we break along political lines in the U.S., that half the people, roughly, want more government, bigger government. And if you're right, and again, I will attribute only, actually, that's not true. I used to attribute only positive things since I've started learning about Nietzsche and the will to power. I realized, oh, wait, there's actually something else going on here. Um, but the idea that the, I wouldn't say mass psychosis, but the frame of reference that has way lower utility is that we need to abolish property rights. Mm -hmm. Everything needs to mm -hmm. go to the government, be redistributed, is the thing that will yield the exact opposite of what they want. UBI. But it does feel like I get where they're coming from. And even somebody like Ray Dalio, and I don't know what his thesis is on how the taxation should change, but he has said himself, like, yes, we need a new tax policy. We need to find a way to better distribute the wealth. Mm. And I do wonder about this with Bitcoin, because the supply is finite, isn't it possible that Jeff Bezos just ends up with all the Bitcoin or Michael Saylor in this case? Like, how do we ensure that the game of the libertarian philosophy does not end up in the same pathology that everything else ends up in? Mm, that's a great question. Well, we know that at least from a libertarian perspective that it won't because it's the stealing that's the problem, right? But somebody can win the game so well that everybody else is... Well, let's think, let's think through it, though. So any individual holder of Bitcoin that has a very large accumulation, let's pick Satoshi. He's got a million Bitcoin, mm. supposedly. No one hasn't moved uh, since the beginning of Bitcoin. But that would be the largest single holder if that is one individual. And if he holds that Bitcoin, does that in any way determine his capacity to change the rules of the Bitcoin network? I'm asking the question. I'm not sure why, because I know the answer. The answer is no. So the greatest risk that a Satoshi brings to Bitcoin is market risk. So he could go and start dumping his million Bitcoin on the market, right? He could suppress the price. Mm. Um, you know, who, it depends on Bitcoin's market cap, how he does it, how long he does it, et cetera, how long that would persist. But the key point 
is that there's no way to for him, even him, the creator of Bitcoin, the largest holder of Bitcoin. Again, we don't know who he is, so he's anonymous. Even that Godhead individual of Bitcoin cannot change the rules of the system that he himself created. And that is the key point. So Jeff Bezos comes in and I don't know his net worth or how much Bitcoin he could buy. Let's say he could buy a million Bitcoin. First of all, to do that, you're going to bid the price of Bitcoin up significantly, mm -hmm. right? So you're enriching older holders. They have larger unrealized gains imputed into their positions which is a larger incentive to sell your Bitcoin for cash or goods or services. Uh, and that's how, through these price cycles, Bitcoin has tended to become more distributed into more hands for that very reason, right? If you bought it at a penny, your incentive to sell at 100 bucks is significant, and at 1,000 bucks, it's gargantuan, right? So people tend to be selling it and buying it over time. Bezos comes in, buys a million Bitcoin, a million and 1.1 million Bitcoin. So now he's... he's uh, superordinate to Satoshi. What's his story? Well, he's bid up the market cap of Bitcoin significantly, but can he himself do anything to change the rules of the game? No. There's no amount of Bitcoin you can buy to change the rules of the game. And there's a large degree, a large share of Bitcoin, let's say, is held by people like me that won't ever sell so there's also that that you're always up against. Not that it could ever affect the rules anyways, but you're never going to have one guy owning 21 million Bitcoin, I guess would be the point. Um, and if you did, you'd be in a world with free banking where people would go out and start their own bank and issue their own currencies as a substitute. Um, and so that would be that alternate reality. But I just... In a libertarian model. So that presumes that there is no government as we would recognize it today. Well, that controls the monetary. System. Yeah, I guess I was also assuming Bitcoin had succeeded in that scenario. And somehow I think the question you're getting is like, what if happens if someone gets all the Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm just trying to think through a libertarian scenario. So what I don't want to fall prey to is what I would view as a fallacy of Everybody always says, oh, no, 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 that wasn't real communism or that wasn't real socialism. And if we just do it right, everything is going to be fine. Like that, that really is a dangerous mm -hmm. way to think. And if, yeah, I really hope people can stop themselves from that one. But I don't want to hear the same thing on libertarianism. Like there's a reason, I think, my base assumption, mm -hmm. there's a reason that we don't have libertarianism either because it, you'll never be able to walk that line is my guess. And that what ends up happening is you get strong people that end up dominating and then the weak people go fuck that noise and so they group up to take down yes. the bully yes. and that grouping up is like whoa this feels really good and so then you have governments they start small good yeah. intentions and they just pathologize yes. over time as yes. they get bigger and bigger and bigger but the pathologization is expressed through taxation that is the domination right the stealing the stealing yep so again from a practical engineering perspective. The only thing we can do about that, we can't change human nature. People are always going to steal if that's an option available. So do you to think them. the make stealing more expensive? Yep. That's how you dissuade and remove non-consensual exchange from the economic fabric. So that I think makes the following prediction that the only reason libertarianism has never truly it's profitable to steal. Yeah, because there's never been a And libertarianism will never exist to the extent that it is profitable to steal. Because people will always do what is profitable. Mm. Always. 
I mean, if you, uh, that could maybe be an axiom. <laughs> like people always do what's profitable, at least psychically. This is kind of gets back to what we said earlier on the last episode that all action is an expression of value, right? People do things because they expect to, they expect it to be a good outcome. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. Mm. Even people that are cutting themselves and physically damaging themselves, they're looking for some high or some goodness of that. Um, it's almost platonic where he says every action we take is aimed at the good. And you can think of, you know, horrible things, but the individual actor thinks what they're doing is good to them or for them in some way. Otherwise they would not do it. So we can't do anything about that. But what we can do is change the actual incentive structures we inhabit and make the stealing game less profitable, thereby shifting human action towards making rather than taking. What do you think, though, about... So, because the argument that's hiding in that is that there's no way to shut off or kill Bitcoin. Mm. But when I watch China, be like, nope, sorry. And I get it. It didn't kill Bitcoin, but you can regionally kill Bitcoin. And I know, of course, yes, you could take your things and go, but that's not easy. So it's pretty effective to either at a country level say, nope, this is done, or like with what happened to Russia, where you shut things off at the like the um, transmitting layer. Mm -hmm. So what kind of risk do you think exists there for governments? And it will be whack-a-mole. I totally understand mm -hmm. that. But for them to just keep crushing any sort of... Because if libertarianism only exists in a world where stealing is no longer profitable, they just make sure that stealing continues to be profitable, at least in their geographic location. Yeah, and that could always be the case with physical property, but at least something like Bitcoin gives us the option to vote with our wallet or vote with our feet and lead the jurisdictions. In China, man, they like, they're not playing well, that game. I want to get to China. So uh, whack-a-mole's a good analogy, actually, because we have to remember the Bitcoin mining network, these miners are like yay big, right? So what happens in a country like China um, the authority comes down and says, hey, no more mining. Here's all these legal restrictions against it. What happens? A lot of these things, these miners get boxed up, shipped to another location, plugged back in. Right? So the network itself is kind of amorphous. If there's a regulatory crackdown in a certain area, miners will just fly into other jurisdictions and get plugged back in. Um, now, actually about China, would you agree that they are the most... I guess the largest communist regime in human history, I'm pretty sure. There are over a billion people. I'd say the CCP has got the reputation for being one of the most ruthless and overtly powerful uh, in human history. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of stories that are leaking out of China about the atrocities taking place there. Uh, I mean, would you agree that at least today, let's say of present governments, that they are the most ruthless and uh, totalitarian regime out to there? To your earlier point, I am not qualified to answer that question. If you take scale into account from my very ignorant perspective, that seems true. Okay. They shut down Bitcoin mining, I think we're about a year and a half ago Roughly. at this point. I think 20%, and so I'm going to have to check my numbers on this because it's been a few months since I looked at it, but it was 20% of Bitcoin's hash rate is still coming out of China. Really? Yes. I did not know that. So if the most ruthless authoritarian regime on the planet 
with its heaviest iron fist can't squash this whack-a-mole amorphous game of Bitcoin mining. So people are just doing it like hacker style? Then who can? Well, my theory is that, again, it's easy to mentally frame the CCP or China as a singular indivisible entity that moves as a whole. It's not what it is at all, right? There's a bunch of little fiefdoms of power and uh, families and all these things. And what do people do? People do what's profitable. So they have a super abundance of hydropower in China. For instance, I know that. They have other sources of power, I'm sure. If that power can't be sold to the grid at a profitable rate and it's more profitable to mine Bitcoin, how are you going to stop? How, like what, what iron fist can control the individual maneuvers of 1.2 billion people when it comes to something like this? I don't, I don't think it's feasible. I don't think it's profi as profitable to try and enforce and control and prevent Bitcoin mining as it is for people to just circumvent the law in whatever way they're doing it and continue Bitcoin mining. And that past 18 months, I think, shows that. Mm. That 20% of the hash rate, again, check the numbers, is still coming out of China. So if the most ruthless regime in the world can't put a lid on this thing, then what other government has a chance? Yeah, I had no idea that there was still 20% hash rate. What percentage is that of what was there before? That I don't know. I want to say they were in the, I want to say they were in the majority of the hash rate and above 50%. So it wildly diminished it, but still, I mean, that 20% is yeah. a really big number. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. So when you think about the, so I've heard you say that America is thus far the best economic experiment we've ever run, mm -hmm. but that there's potentially something better beyond that. What would that better thing be? Is it no government? Well, I think we go back to the exclusive scope of government as circumscribed by the Magna Carta, which was the preservation of life, liberty, and inviolable property. Do you think we made a mistake in the American Constitution to say pursuit of happiness instead of property? I do, but I've heard arguments to the contrary, and I haven't done the dig on that. So in my extremely strong views about the importance of property, I see it as a mistake, mm. but I've heard there's uh, a religious or spiritual element to it, but I'm not qualified to speak to that one. Um, ultimately, government is the social apparatus of coercion, compulsion, and violence. You only want to invoke that social apparatus in, as a means of retaliation or resolution to some form of coercion, compulsion, or violence, right? Someone stole your stuff. Someone hurt you. Someone hurt someone you love. Mm -hmm. That's when you need recourse to the state or the law. So to the extent that we can move the world toward one in which government exclusively maintains that scope of service, that it defends life, it defends liberty, and it defends property, that seems to me the best solution for dealing with this. It's almost like a necessary evil, right? Violence and force is an ever-present reality. We have to deal with it somehow. This seems to be, and this is what you know, the founding fathers and obviously the people that inspired them thought as well, the government that governs best governs least, right? Just uh, restrict it to that very specific scope of service. And now, okay, it sounds great in theory, but history has obviously been a real pain in the ass of that because once you put all the power in one place, absolute power corrupts absolutely, 
institutions don't follow the laws that they promulgate. Institutions follow the individuals that run the institutions. Mm. Those individuals tend to be corruptible. They will bend the publicly applied rule for private gain. That is actually my definition of corruption. There's a rule that we're all supposed to play by, and then one guy twists the rule to his advantage, and everyone else has to keep playing by it or is otherwise hurt by it. That's corruption in a nutshell. And that's what I think inflation and taxation and all these things are. So that would then, I guess with Bitcoin, that's why we call Bitcoin incorruptible money, right? It's a the first level playing field we've ever had in the sphere of economics. A rule set that no one can change Everyone just plays by, by consent. Now, it's always optional to use Bitcoin. You're never coerced to use it. But that option to have space or territory in a monetary network that no one can compromise and no one can change, that option becomes more valuable in the marketplace as the other money space is increasingly having its rules twisted and violated and changed, right? Right? more capital controls, more inflation, more taxation, more confusion. As this place gets more chaotic, there is increasing demand for this place of integrity and transparency and universality. So that's how I see this playing out is that the violation of property rights is going to continue to accelerate as it always has with governments. That creates this osmotic pressure for people to adopt the option of not being violated, right? As people try to preserve wealth across time. This is sucking economic energy out of the fiat system and into the Bitcoin system. And now you have people with a very strong form of property that is immune to capital controls. They can go anywhere in the world with it. And they can basically vote with their feet. So you're defunding this mechanism and empowering individuals to self-organize in the way that best suits them individually. And that hopefully restricts government over time because you're now, you're removing the revenue sources of taxation and inflation from government. Definitely inflation, taxation's more interesting when it comes to Bitcoin over time. We'll see how that plays out. It's at least going to shrink government and hopefully shrink government back towards that exclusive scope of the preservation of life, liberty, and property, which is the philosophical theoretical perfection of government as conceived 800 years ago. Have you read the book Infomocracy? I have not. It's interesting. It comes to a similar conclusion that you've come to, but I think from a pretty different angle. So the idea is that the world fractures into all these tiny Mm -hmm. little countries and that even as you move through a city, you're moving through countries. Mm And each one, because you can track people so specifically and data is like the oil, it's you get this just completely fractionated world. And I heard you say that while you have no concept of what timeline would be, if it's 10 years or 100 years, 200 years, whatever, but that you think that there will sometime be like 20,000 different countries. Why is that the natural conclusion of this osmotic pressure into the Bitcoin world? So... This is one of my favorite books, actually. It might be closely related to the one you just mentioned, uh, The Sovereign Individual. Mm. Written in 1997, it predicted things like the move from, what do they call it, broadcasting to narrowcasting. So they were predicting social media as a consequence of mobile digital technologies. So interesting to hear people like predict that stuff. Yeah, it predicted uh, the government use of certain medical... Um, policy to revalidate 
its borders, let's say, to control the flows of people in and out of countries. And it predicted the emergence, again, written in 1997, of what they called anonymous digital cyber cash. And the extrapolation from that invention was basically the fracturing and collapse of the nation state as the dominant institution in the world. Now, it's a very dense book. Um, I'll try to give you the very, there's a lot that goes into it, but just the very basic premise of why that is the case. Why, why do you go from anonymous digital cyber cash to the fracturing of the nation state is sort of what I tried to just describe, right? Like we've all been forced into monetary policy up until this point. We did to the point we don't even know what inflation is, right? Like mm. how much purchasing power have you been milked of inflation in your career that you really have no idea about really? It's, it's an interesting uh, kind of insidious, invisible taxation. Once people have an option to exit that for a uh, either an individually selected monetary policy or one that is just fixed, like in Bitcoin, I don't even like calling Bitcoin a monetary policy because there's no policing to it. It's not being enforced in any way. It's just an option. You just go and freely choose uh, to use this, this type of money that no one can print. And so as that unfolds and people realize that there's an option to, again, people are going to do what's profitable, right? And profitability also entails reducing cost. So if I can reduce my cost structure by saving in Bitcoin rather than saving in dollars, then I'm going to do that. And then once I'm in Bitcoin, I now have more leverage in my negotiations with the state that they can't as easily, they can't inflate, they can't as easily tax me either because I have a form of property that's immune to capital controls, it's globally transactable, I can vote with my feet and move anywhere in the world, that that would lead to a reorganization of people into jurisdictions where they are treated best. So the most capital, the most talent, the best performers will naturally coalesce into the jurisdictions where they're treated best. And um, a lot of this, the thinking on this too, it's rooted on kind of an obscure literature on the economics of violence or force. Um, I've written about this a bit uh, in my Sovereignism series. Again, the sovereign individual goes into it. But let's just say that the ways we project power in the world can radically change our political modes of organization. A very simple example of this was, for a long time, the armed knight on horseback was the dominant martial force in the land, right? No one can take out an armed knight. It was the strongest form of military hardware in the world, pretty much. You know, he, a single knight could kill 50 peasants, let's say. No problem. So that was the weapon in the world. All of a sudden, the invention of gunpowder. What happens? One peasant can now take out an armed knight on horseback at 200 yards. That led to uh, the collapse of feudalism, the collapse of the medieval church as the law on the land. Like, there were all these follow-on consequences as a result of that simple change that someone figured out, you put explosive powder in a long pipe and shoot a ball at the guy and he's dead. Um, so with Bitcoin, it's, it's the def ultimate defender's advantage, right? Earlier when you were talking about the strong people coming into power, dominating the weaker people. Well, now the weaker people will have recourse to a form of wealth that is indomitable. You cannot steal it from them, right? They can... So there's less profitability for the, the aggressor. He can't get the property and there's more optionality for the victim. So that leads to a world that's more 
heavily consensual, in my opinion.